This is Andrew Hall, host of Dead Hand Radio. My guest for this episode is Melinda Leslie, UFO researcher, investigator, and experiencer. I've followed Melinda's work in the UFO disclosure movement for a while and learned that she's not only a respected and well-known researcher, investigator with 30 years of experience on the subject of UFOs and abductions, she's also the owner of a UFO tour company in Sedona, Arizona, where she's conducted over 1,270 tours with the use of military-grade night vision goggles. Sedona is a well-known hotspot for UFO activity and Melinda guarantees sightings on each outing. She's a multiple abductee that went public over 28 years ago and has a lifetime of experiences with the beings that control these craft, sometimes referred to as the Others. Melinda is also quite well connected with some very important insiders on this topic and is one of the leading researchers in pursuit of making government disclosure a reality. In this episode, Melinda and I talk about her experiences as an abductee, how she became aware that she had been an abductee her whole life, and how her abductions have evolved over time. We also talk about mill labs, or military abductions. Melinda has done extensive work with abductees and is herself an abductee of this program. Melinda lays out in detail some of the things she's discovered during her research on this subject and discusses the program's agenda, many of the methods used in this scenario, and the people that are most often targeted. Then we get into the topic of UFO disclosure and Melinda shares her observations in that area. Finally, we discuss how people can get more involved in bringing this subject to light. It's an information-packed episode with some very interesting twists on this UFO edition of Dead Hand Radio. Thanks for listening. owner of UFO Sighting Tours in Sedona, Arizona, researcher and investigator, and a specialist in the abduction subject. And you are listening to Dead Hand Radio. So, hi, Melinda. Welcome to Dead Hand Radio. Hi. Thank you for having me. Well, thank you for joining me. I, um... I'm very excited to talk to you about a lot of things as, as we talked about a little bit in our, in our pre interview phone call. Um, there's a lot of things that we can touch on, but let's start with your experience as a little girl born in the sixties during a period of intense strife and uncertainty in our world. Sure. This was right in the middle of the cold war and the possibility of nuclear exchange with the Soviet union was very real and at times imminent. What was it like, and what do you remember about that period? Oh, goodness. Um, I mean, I remember a lot about my childhood, but um, how it relates to the Cold War, I know we talked about this a little bit on the phone yesterday, is, um, for for instance, I remember doing the drop and cover uh, drills while I was in school. You know, either putting your head down, covering it, or getting under the desk. I mean, you know, when I was very young, we were we were still doing that in school. So uh, I I remember those. I also remember air raid sirens or testing the air raid siren system. Um, 
and uh, I lived in coastal California, uh, but they, they would still do those. And so I remember those. And so these are all things uniquely related to that Cold War, you know, period. And, uh, and you know, even when I was young, we're, we're still going on. Um, I also remember I was thinking after our talk yesterday about um, missile tests at Vandenberg and seeing the trails of the missiles, uh, missile and rocket tests as they were, uh, launching test rockets from Vandenberg in Southern California. And uh, and it was very common to, to see the trails from those in the sky. Um, so, you know, those are just some of the things that I remember from my childhood uh, relating, you know, very directly to the Cold War period. Yeah, it's, it's, um, it's pretty common knowledge that the Cold War, uh, because it lasted for so long and it impacted every area of our lives uh, from art and science to culture, social issues, literature, film, and music. And yesterday we talked a little bit about some of the music um, that you listened to and that was directly influenced by the, the Cold War. Did you want to talk a little bit about that? Yeah, well, you know, um, yeah, that was another thing, you know, uh, and actually not so much my childhood, although, although there were the the 60s protest songs and everything and sure you could relate that to being the cold war period is too i mean that's when it you know began uh, vietnam korea etc and uh and and there was a lot of music generated by that but when i think cold war i think of like the reagan era and i think of uh you know gorbachev and before him khrushchev and you know and so as I was thinking of that, all these songs started coming to mind. And um, just just to throw out a, a, a few here, well, I have a whole list, but um, uh, you know, we were talking on the phone yesterday and I thought of uh, Russians by Sting, you know, if the Russians love their children too, you know, being directly related. Um, uh, Tears for Fears, Everybody Wants to Rule the World was, uh, was because of the Cold War. Um, and, uh, you know, going back, so those are like mid 80s, those are both in 1985 and 1983, uh, New Year's Day by U2 and, 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 and the Scorpions Winds of Chain, the, like, people call it the whistling song, where he's whistling in it, you know, Scorpions Winds of Change was 1990 and um, uh, Peter Gabriel, um, Games Without Frontiers, uh, you know, uh, of course the fix and the, their song Red Skies, you know, red skies at night. Do do. Anyway, I shouldn't sing. <laughs> and uh, and a, a kind of a real alternative song called "99 Left Balloons" was specifically about it as well, about the planes coming in and and you know at the end and etc. So, um, gosh, there's so many. I mean, uh, those are just some you know that come to mind. Um, uh, you know, right off the bat. So I have I have a longer list, but uh, you know, including like 2005 Genesis, Land of Confusion. Not till 2005, but yet still making a cold a comment on the Cold War period um, with Land of Confusion by Genesis. And so you know, the, all these were ranging between the earliest one I had down here on this list was in 1980, and the last that I could think of was in 2005, but all throughout the 80s, I mean, there's these songs, uh, even Billy Joel in 89, we didn't start the fire, you know? So there's so many that are 
have Cold War references in them. And, and it was an inspiration. And some of these are, you know, huge hits. And, and yet uh, that was their inspiration. Yeah, every song that you mentioned, uh, save a couple. I've I listened to as I was growing up. I mean, that is the formative years of my of my growing up, mm-hmm. and a, as it was for you as well. I mean, those that's when music is it's it is the most well, important in a person's life. I think. Is- I don't know if I should give this away, but I graduated <laughs> I graduated from high school in '80, so this was my my college years. You know those those songs. And, you know, from 80, so the end of my high school, you know, 80, and then, and then going into uh, all the way up to 2005. But uh, definitely, you know, all the, that 10-year period throughout the 80s, um, it, it was a huge inspiration for stars in, in many genres. Exactly. And you, um, you know, you, you hit on some, some really uh, – key memories for me as you were naming those songs and i'm hoping that people listening to it that are in our age group or even older um who hear those those songs allow it to take them back and and kind of relive some of those moments in history because it's important for us to remember the past sure well and and like i said these were you know all the songs that i thought of and then the ones that I kind of went online and found a few others um, were all huge hits during that time um, and uh, and and again the Cold War being the inspiration for the song shows its impact on the culture at the time that that it would influence a song that would then become a, a hit you know popular song um, shows you to the degree that that it was influencing you know culture at the time and uh, and I think even for younger people if you don't know the songs I talked about first off they're all great songs they're worth listening to because they're really really good songs the ones I mentioned but also listening to the lyrics in them or looking up the lyrics while you listen to realize that that inspiration and, and the comment they were making, the social comment they were making was the fears and reactions and government, you know, statements about the government or politics and statements about the military and, and our, you know, fears, concerns, reactions to it um, that that generated these popular songs. So I think it's I think it's not only good music that should be listened to, but I think historically it's important to to listen to it and to and to see how it reflected. You know, uh, I mean that's just one example to say songs. I know it reflected in in movies and books and you know many things that touched upon it. But uh, you know it was a huge time culture. You know, it makes me wonder now with everything going on politically now um, how that's going to reflect in music. You know, so we'll see. We'll see what the creative process shows in our current music. That is something that I do explore with with guests. And it's, um, you know, the current day events and how what we're going through now is going to affect future generations and arts and culture and science. Mm-hmm. Um, for this For this episode, I think we'll leave that for a, a, you know a later discussion and and st- stick to the the period of you know let's say the 60s as you were growing up and then through the 70s and the 80s um which were the the very end of the cold war era the berlin wall 
came down in 89 and then the Soviet Union collapsed in 91. But there were some other key points or key moments in history that you would have been uh, certainly aware of, especially if you were just going graduating high school and going into college in, in 1980. That's when Reagan was elected. Um, do you remember, see, I've talked to several people about this period when Reagan was get, getting elected uh, or, you know, um, campaigning to be elected. Sure. Um, and the, the rhetoric was just as vitriolic as back then as it was, as, as it has been ever since. Um, people were accusing Reagan of a warmonger, you know, being a warmonger. Yeah. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. But, but it created a real sense of fear and dread in people in the United States and probably throughout the world. But what, what was your feeling about that period? When, when right before Reagan was being elected? Well, uh, you know, um, I don't think I was that engaged back then in, in politics, but I was aware of it. And, you know, in, in my family, my parents, which are both no longer with us, but my dad was a Reagan Republican you know, and my mom was a Kennedy Democrat. That pretty much describes both of their political views to a T. Um, and uh, so there was, you know, dis discussion amongst them um, and, and at times, you know, disagreements, but, um, but uh, minor, you know, but they, let's just say they agreed to disagree, but it was interesting, you know, growing up and, and, and then we're talking the eighties, I was in college. Um, I, I was working and, uh, and I was pursuing dance at the time. And so politics and stuff was not something I was paying immediate attention to, um, but wasn't immune to, was hearing it in the you know, periphery for sure. And uh, yeah, yeah, you know, it, it, uh, it, again, that, that realizing how it influenced culture at the time, uh, certainly, you know, uh, does not go unnoticed. And uh, and uh, and it influenced, you know, the future of politics. Um, it, it certainly, Reagan's presidency influenced the Republican Party greatly. You know, uh, I think changed it in different ways. And uh, you know, so I think it's a, definitely an important period in history. Um, you know, on one hand, it's easy to reflect back and go, wow, I'm glad we moved beyond that. And then the other hand, it's to realize, well, did we really, you know, it's still having an impact and and it's uh, having an impact on politics and social things still, definitely. you know, so, yeah. yeah. Definitely. Now, uh, what about the uh, collapse of the Berlin Wall when they when they broke, you know, broke through the, the barrier of East and West Germany? and literally had that wall tore down. Do you remember that specifically? Oh, of course, of course. It was a huge thing on the on the news and, um, you know, people were buying pieces of it, you know. Um, no, it was huge. It was huge. And um, I'll never forget when Reagan said, you know, tear down this wall, you know. And, uh, and I thought it was, um, I, I think it did show a transition out of that period and into a new period, certainly our relationship with uh, Russia and the Eastern Bloc, you know, changed uh, during that time. And um, yeah, yeah, I remember it quite, quite profoundly. 
did you feel a sense of of relief and joy that there was um you know it, it's oh, yeah. like a period oh, yeah. of an of an end yeah. an end of an era of yeah, it seemed perpetual like a, strife and conflict between the west and the east yes yeah i i think it did represent that um the thing is at the time it represented it now we could get this whole discussion but i don't necessarily want to go there now because i know we want to get into a ufo abduction component of this but but i'll say this um at the time, it seemed like a big change, and the relationship had greatly changed. Over time, I'm not so sure that's the case, that we don't have that much of a change with Russia, or there's, I think it could even be maybe discussed or debated that we're backsliding into that, you know, so um, we'll see. We'll see. We're, we're in a great deal of political change in this country, so we're going to see how that, you know, affects our relationships abroad and and uh, and hopefully that kind of backsliding feeling is is not the case we'll we'll see um, and uh, you know so yeah that's that's about that's a you know it's more like let's see where how it plays out going forward but I hope that there's not a, a, a backsliding and um, I would hope Russia becomes more democratic, you know, than it is. Um, so again, it seemed like a change, but my question is, was it really a change? Was it, were we celebrating prematurely, you know? So that that's that's just the concern I have. Okay, that's a fair point. And I I, I do address that on other episodes of, of the podcast. I talk about the more current events and um, I, I really, like you said, we've got limited time and we don't want to go down that road. But as far as the the celebration aspect of it, I think we have to take up every opportunity that we get to celebrate and enjoy those moments of respite. Oh, sure. Or respite, sure. however you want to pronounce it. But that's what oh, that absolutely. was. It was a period yeah. of, it, it was the end of an era and it was a period for people to just relax and breathe, even if it was for a moment. And, and you need those breaks in the tension, just like when you're watching a good movie. Sure, sure. You know? well, it gives people hope, too. It, it, I think it's psychologically necessary. You know, it gives people hope. And, and now we have that to hang on to as saying, let's maintain that. Let's not backslide. Let, you know, so now it's like it's like resets the compass in a new you know, direction. And and uh, and it, like you said, the respite, the I think psychologically, uh, those moments are really powerful. And uh, and I think we're going to have many more moments to celebrate. Absolutely. I mean, I have I have I have faith in america i have faith in the world i have faith in democracy i have faith in 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 peace and a lot of movements worldwide towards peace and uh and in you know uh, i could also make a comment that there's a spiritual component to it we are in the age of aquarius the new age if you will which is of compassion understanding enlightenment and uh and i think the energies are taking us that direction if anything negative goes on i think it's coming to the surface to be cleansed and released and recognized for what it is so that we can move on beyond it it's like you got to have that discussion to say oh look so that you can then move beyond it yeah 
Well, your your message is a beacon of light for a lot of people because there is a lot of uncertainty at this time. It, you know, I mean, we're in a different. Yeah, we've gone through age. much worse. Yeah, we've been. Yeah. <laughs> we've I, been I agree with you. Worse. I one hundred percent agree with you. <laughs> I I am an optimistic person. I believe yeah. that there is a, a another side to this period that we're going through, and when we get to the other side of it. We're going to see, uh, I, I've said this before, but I'm going to say it for you. Um, we're on the cusp of an explosion in creativity in all aspects Absolutely. of our Absolutely. world. Absolutely. Absolutely. And Absolutely. Once, when, when we get to that point, it's going to be like a new renaissance. People are going to look back at this period and say, wow, that wasn't that, that wasn't so bad. It yeah. was, it was a buildup of so that we could have a release and the release is going to be so overwhelmingly positive and good. Hey, I'm totally with you. I totally 100% agree. You know, I, I do, I do readings too. We hadn't really talked about the, that with my background and stuff, but uh, uh, at least not on this recording, but uh, um, here in Sedona, Arizona, I do readings, psychic readings, and I'm a, a, a medium. And, uh, but in my readings, which I do almost every day and usually a couple of days, um, I keep getting that for people and the future going forward. Um, we're on the birth of, for instance, so this is in agreement with what you're saying, on what I call the new dot-com era. It, uh, you know, I don't know what to call it. It's a new technology boom era. In in um, We're going to have technology booms in, um, and like you said, creative, you know, booms. Uh, I think the technology, I think... Uh, uh, um, infrastructure stuff, um, telecommunications, huge. There's going to be huge, huge breakthroughs, new developments in technology in telecommunications. Um, like I said, infrastructure sciences, medical sciences, um, advancements in medical science and um, um, scientific equipment uh, involved in the you know medical fields. Um, and so I think it's going to be in multiple areas. Um, that we're going to have this technology boom, which I think is in total keeping with what you just said, and uh, and and all sorts of breakthroughs. And so we're entering that period, and uh, and it will increase exponentially over the next couple of years. I, if I could make a you know suggestion to your audience, is like invest in technology industries, particularly telecommunications. Oh, transportation is another one. Telecommunications, transportation industries. Um, uh, communications industries and uh, uh, high-tech development, high-tech energy stuff, high-tech environmental stuff, high-tech mili um, um, well, military, but I didn't mean to say, I meant to say medical. But anyway, so invest in those areas because there's going to be tremendous growth. Okay. And just because you said the word invest, I have to make this disclaimer that this cannot be considered financial advice. Oh, of course, of course, of course, of course. <laughs> But I'm just saying, you know, if, yeah, of course. We, I understand. You and I, Melinda Leslie and Andrew Hall, share a common interest and a common belief that things are going to be turning to the upside. Yeah. And it's a good idea to keep an eye on those areas, especially if you're in the financial markets. Yeah. Yeah. That's what I meant. Exactly. Okay. That's exactly. Cool. That's uh, what I so, meant. yeah, but, you know, we certainly agree on those, on, on those areas. And that's, um, that's good because, uh, you know, the more positive energy that people put out there, the more people that put out that positive energy uh, is more is, is going to bring it 
um, to fruition? Well, you know, everything is cautious, consciousness based. Everything is consciousness. You know, I jokingly kind of say, but it's not really joking with people that there's no such thing as physical matter. It's actually all consciousness. Everything is, if, if you think of it all as energy, it's all energy in motion. So like in front of me, I have this glass top table. Well, that's just because the atoms and molecules are vibrating at a rate, but you put that under electric, uh, uh, um, electron microscope and there's really no surface. You realize at one point it's, you know, the atoms and, and of the air and the outside environment intermingling with those of, of what you call the table, right? So everything is energy and vibration and it's all consciousness based. So when you change your thinking, you change the world. And that has been proven over and over. Physics is now proving that. I mean, physics is proving that. So when you shift the way you think about it, you change everything. So hold a positive outcome because then the, then the world, the creation of the world, the physical world around you then, then aligns with that, okay? It, it it's matches that vibration. So hold a positive outcome, a positive intent, you know, in your mind, in your mind's eye, and that is the world you create. And it'll certainly create that way in your own world, in your own life, but then that will then manifest out into the greater community, whether that's your community, whether that's the country, or whether that's the whole world, or even out into the universe in our interaction, because we're going to get into the UFO stuff, in our interaction with the others. Excellent, excellent message. Uh, and on that note, I think it's a good place to move on to the topics that we both have a, a, an intense interest in, and you going back decades. Mm -hmm. um, but before we talk about your research and, and your, your journey into the investigation of these topics, you started at a, a pretty young age experiencing contact with these. Others. Yes. Yeah. Now Can I you didn't talk about that. Sure. Absolutely. I, now I didn't know till 1989 that was the beginning of like my discovery process um i mean now i realize i had inklings of it going way back but i didn't know for sure that i had contact and abduction events till 1989 and then i and then realizing i had had it my whole life real quick though before we go on to that i want to say you know it's not a departure to go from the cold war subject to the UFO subject, because I think there's many places where there's a relationship. I think our nuclear race, if you will, you know, and arms uh, pro pro proliferation, that's what I'm trying to say, um, has always been something that's been of extreme interest to the ETs. Um, the, the sightings increased in the, I mean, there always was UFO sightings, but there was a huge flap or wave that increased in the early 40s and early 50s, um, and, and which goes to, to today, uh, because it seemed that there were these huge waves of sightings, and you've probably have had people talk about this on your show, but in relationship to the uh, exploding and testing of nuclear weapons both the the test the test explosions and then the actual uh you know dropping of the bombs and whatnot um 
that there's huge amounts of sightings. Uh, there's a whole connection to the whole Roswell incident and that crash retrieval with the fact that there may have been that they that the craft were there because they were checking out what was going on. This happened in other places. And there's more. I mean, I could go much further, but there is a direct correlation. And then going to my abduction stuff, so that's say going into what you want me to get into, is um, is it's it's been a big part of the abductions. Um, it's very common in alien abduction scenarios for abductees to be shown, for instance, Earth blowing up um, to show the results of war on Earth and and uh, nuclear explosions and and technology being gone out of control and these kind of things. These these repeating scenarios or uh, demonstrations. Uh, keep coming up consistently and regularly in abductions and other contact events. Um, uh, you know, it's it's prevalent in the contact and abduction scenario, and that the ETs seem to have this huge concern about us being aware of of. Uh, how problematic that technology can be and how destructive. I mean, in one of my alien abductions, they actually showed me Earth blowing up and said, literally said, don't ever let this happen. When did your abduction start? So in 1989, on a, a kind of a fluke last minute trip, a friend of mine had stumbled upon a radio show called Billy Goodman's The Happening out of Las Vegas. And right then is when the Bob Lazar story was uh, was breaking. For those who don't know, Robert Lazar was a research scientist working out at Area 51. And the reason we know about Area 51 in Nevada is kind of because of Lazar. Lazar had confided in a friend of his, which was Gene Huff. Gene Huff said, look, I don't know anything about this, but I just helped appraise, he was a real estate appraiser, appraise this house for this famous UFO researcher, John Lear. Lazar took Lear and Huff out there to prove to him that what he was saying was correct. When I say out there on Highway 375 in Nevada to see test flights of craft in our possession, alien craft in our possession. Okay, so so he took him out there. They saw it repeatedly. Lear went on this radio program talking about it. A friend of mine stumbled upon this radio program, told me about it. I didn't really have a previous interest in the subject, but she said, here, listen, listen to this so I can have someone else to talk to about it. And she got me listening to the show. Right then, the producer of the show was having so many people call in saying, where can we go see these sightings? Where on Highway 375? So they just the, the, the radio station decided to rent two buses, have people meet in a hotel parking lot in Las Vegas and go out there. My friends said, let's go do this. Now, we didn't get on the buses, but we drove from Southern California five hours to Vegas, from Vegas two and a half hours out to Rachel, Nevada, which is just beyond where this was, was to happen. Okay, And we went out there. And we stayed out all night and had amazing sightings. Again, 375 seeing possible alien craft, defy physics, do amazing turns, stop on a dime, change direction, et cetera. We were so blown away, we made the whole trip again on our own to go see this again 
two weeks later, and then a month after that. So these three trips back to back of having amazing physical sightings of ET craft or possible ET craft every time was like inserting a key and turning it because it allowed memories to come forward for me of childhood, teenage, and young adult abduction events. Now I'm going to give you an example of what I was remembering, okay, which gets into my childhood experiences, okay. And then it goes forward and I had current present time experiences late 89, 90 with a roommate of mine even witnessing what was happening to me or roommates of mine witnessing, but I'll get into that in just a minute. So what had happened is, is after having all the signs, like I said, I started to have dreams at night recalling childhood experiences. For instance, my grandmother had a place out in Yucca Valley, California, California desert. We would go out there quite a bit as kids. Um, I, at the time, was five years old. I was put down for a nap. My grandmother lived about a half hour outside of the main town of Yucca Valley, out in the middle of the desert. She had a little tiny house out in the middle of the desert with her closest neighbors were like half a mile away, except for one old guy who lived like 50 yards away who, with two donkeys in his yard. <laughs> okay. And no one else for quite a ways. Okay. But we'd go out there, we'd play and stuff. And I was put down for a nap at five years old. Everyone went into town, I think, to go see a movie. And, and one adult stayed behind. Now, I always, my whole life had this, knew this, you know, memory, this next part. Okay, which is I was put down for a nap. Everyone went into town. And I remembered little kids coming to the bedroom window at my grandmother's little house and my sneaking outside and going and playing with these little kids and that the adult had fallen asleep on the couch and I snuck out past them and went outside played with these kids. Well suddenly I'm having a dream at night recalling that whole event oh and by the way everyone came home from the movies and they said and I was again this I always had this memory everyone came home from the movies and said, or whatever they did in town and said, how was your nap, Melinda? And I said, I went outside and played with little kids. And they said, no, grandma lives in the middle of nowhere. There's, you know, it's 102 degrees out there, the closest neighbors, an old guy, and there's no little kids for miles, you know? And I said, well, little kids came to the bedroom window and they turned to the adult who was there and said, what goes on? And they said, she was asleep the whole time. You know, she was asleep. So they're saying, oh, you just dreamt it. So my whole life, I'm thinking, OK, I just had this dream. But suddenly, I'm having a new dream in late 89, where I'm recalling that whole experience. But it wasn't little kids at the bedroom window. It was gray aliens. And I had an abduction. And I have, and I received a, a scar on my leg, what's typical in abduction research called a scoop scar, you know, little like a little scoop of skin taken, very common. And, uh, and I had that ever since then. I received a mark on my leg in that experience, my a little scoop scar I have to this day. And, and so, so suddenly it wasn't just kids coming to the bedroom window. It was actually an abduction and that the adult had been knocked out, you know, and I had been taken. They'd been, you know, knocked to sleep or whatever. And, and I'm like, okay, this is crazy. Now, jumping ahead, uh, when I was 12 years old, there was a, uh, a place called the Yucca Inn, a little motel in town that we would stay at when we went out there. 
one day I'm, I'm 12 and my family was going to go on a day hike to Joshua Tree National Monument. You know, it's a, a hiking trails and picnic and, and they, they packed a picnic and said, we're going to go on this day hike and go to Joshua Tree National Monument. Well, I wasn't feeling well. I felt queasy, sick to my stomach. I, the heat was not helping. It was very hot. And it was like 102 that day. And so my family said, okay, you stay here. We're going to go. I said, yeah, go have a good time. I think they left a sandwich and some food for me in the hotel room. They said, take a nap. We'll, you know, check in with you later. And I was 12 at that age. I was already babysitting everything. I could clearly be left alone. And they said, if you get feeling better, there was a, a, a pool at the motel and lots of families there. And so it was very safe. And they said, if you get feeling better, you can go in the pool. And so I laid down, they left, okay? Now, what I had always recalled my whole life is that I laid down, couldn't sleep. There was a really noisy wall-mounted air conditioning unit and the room stunk because whoever was in there before us was smokers. And back then there was no such thing as a non-smoking room. And so like the room really stunk and the air conditioning was, unit was loud and I wasn't feeling good and there's no way I could sleep. So I went outside to take a little walk out in the hotel uh, parking lot down a little side street just to get some fresh air and come right back. I come back, I go in the bathroom, in the hotel room, and my family comes home. And I said, oh, it was too hot. You decide not to do your hike. And they said, what are you talking about? I said, yeah, you guys came right back. And they said, well, what are you talking about? We've been gone all day. We've been gone like six hours. And I'm like, no, I, at 12 years old, I had a great sense of time. I figured maybe it'd been an hour. I mean, I'd lay down, never, ever slept, wish I could, couldn't, went outside to get fresh air, came back, used the bathroom, there they are. And they said, Melinda, we've been gone like six hours. You must have fallen asleep. And I said, no, I wish I'd fallen asleep. And they said, well, you must forget that you fell asleep because we've been gone all day. So I had now what's understood in abduction research as missing time. And so, so I definitely, you know, it had missing time. Well, I always had that memory that, you know, my whole life, but all of a sudden I'm having a dream at night, again, after hot, having all these sightings out at Area 51 on three different trips, that I'm having a dream at night where I'm recalling that whole event. But when I went outside the hotel room to walk around in the parking lot and walk down the street, I walked out into the desert over a little hill and there was like a wash and there was a landed craft and I was taken on board. And again, received another scoop mark from that event, a scar on my leg that I have to this day from that event. So suddenly those memories were coming forward and I'll, and others, other childhood, but those are, you know, two real specific ones. Um, and, uh, and they both, re you know, ended up in having a little mark on my leg. When did you discover the scoop mark in your leg? Well, I'd had that my whole life. I just didn't know how I had this little scar. I had a little scar that I never knew how I, I had two scars uh, uh, that I never knew how I got. I'm like, okay, well, you know, who knows what you did as a kid to, you know, receive that, you know, is what I had always thought. And they were pretty minor, but I said, well, this is weird. I have these two little scars, but it turns out that they were both received from those two events. I mean, that's what, you know, came up in my memory. And I had conscious memory, so that was all conscious memory. Eventually, over those experiences and many, many others, I started working with a full-fledged psychotherapist, PhD in psychology, because I thought, 
at first I didn't think I was actually having these experiences. I thought I was losing my mind. And I sought the help of a psychotherapist someone had recommended to me, but she also did regressive hypnosis. And it turned out that that I was recalling these experiences after, you know, I ended up working with her for many years. Um, but here I was recalling those experiences in regressive hypnosis as well. Uh, so we, you know, we looked at those. Um, and I went to her saying, well, you know, obviously this isn't happening. Something must be wrong, you know? <laughs> and I'm like, yeah, I had sightings. Maybe they're influencing, you know, my memory or whatever. But then when it turned out that I was recalling how I got these marks on my leg and then it jumps forward. I mean, this is just, these, these are minor compared to the overall picture because I've had, I've continued to have experiences my whole life. My last one was two years ago. I've been taken with large groups of people where the other, and small groups, where the other people involved also recall the event. And I've had other additional experiences with a tremendous amount of physical evidence. Um, and my case has been researched and investigated in the field by a number of people. And, and I'm now known as an abduction researcher. So, you know, but this, I'm just telling you the beginning of kind of what my discovery process was of realizing that this had actually started in childhood. Cause here I'm recalling an experience when I was five years old an experience when I was 12 years old, as well as others. In late 89, just after all those recalls, I had an experience where I had roommates witness my abduction. So at that point it got, went to a current present time experience. Of, of a roommate witnessing I was gone and seeing an alien in the house completely conscious she was completely conscious and and witnessed my being gone during a period of missing time and an alien in the house okay so I, I just want to focus on those first two events because um, you the, the first event you just remember playing with the what you thought was children in the dream is it's or in your memory you thought it was children but in the dream you realized that it was grays and you were at that point you were taken on board a craft yeah 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 okay absolutely yeah and then in the later uh event uh when you were 12 you you walked over that little uh, hill in the desert and you saw the craft you can you just take it on board yeah mm -hmm. can you describe the craft what it looked like if you imagine like a shallow bowl on top turned upside down so if you had like a big soup bowl that soup bowl that was wide and kind of shallow and on the bottom like a big like a mixing bowl something deeper okay so that's what it looked like i, I call it a pot belly because and that's very common description in in crafts in some in some crafts is is to have that bigger uh kind of bowl bottom and a shallow bowl on top so uh you know like put those together so that's what it looked like it it, it it was on three or four little legs and it was sitting on the ground and and that there were uh small grays around it and that yeah i was taken on board and proceeded to have this sample of um skin or you know or, or possible genetic material something taken from just below my knee where i have a little scoop mark now it, do you recall at, at any time if you felt like you were being summoned to that location i was walking outside to get fresh air is what i thought at the time because i was not feeling good and it was miserable in the hotel room it was 
stuffy, stinky, loud, you know. And so I just said to, you know, I, I, I don't want to start throwing up. I want to feel better. So I walked outside and went for just a little walk to get some fresh air before I went back in because I was going to go. I, what made me go back in is I had to use the restroom and I was going to go and use the restroom and then try to lay down and get some more sleep. Um, that was the, the, the goal. And, uh, and so I walked around outside. And yes, I guess I feel I was drawn now, you know, retrospectively to walk out into the desert and up this, you know, in embankment and over. I mean, it wasn't that far from the hotel. I've been back to the area. There are some houses built in the area since that time, but there's still a, a wash. So de the, the desert floor does rise up even where the houses are. It's kind of gently uphill. And then all of a sudden the houses end and then there's, there's kind of a, a washer dry riverbed so it does match my memory um and uh and so yeah i uh um you know that that's in that experience uh, i guess yes in answer to your question i did feel compelled to walk into the desert yes and that's very common in in abductions too uh it, there's this whole thing uh, with one of the common indicators i mean there's a whole list of like you know 50 common indicators but one of them is compelled to walk or drive to an unknown area walk walk or drive out of the way or to an unknown area or for no reason at all you know like walk into the desert walk into the forest or you know walk a couple blocks in a direction you've never been or drive into an area like that so i've had both experiences multiple times of feeling uh propelled to walk out of the way or to an unknown area or and or drive out of the way. I mean, I had a major experience a couple of years ago, driving home on the 10 freeway, coming from Los Angeles, California area back to where I live. And so I was going to drive, uh, you know, to Sedona, but Arizona, but coming through Phoenix. So, so in the middle of nowhere off the 10, about two hours outside of Phoenix, I had a major period of missing time where I also drove off the freeway in the middle of nowhere on a two-lane road when I was actually wanting to get home, you know, and so that made no sense, but in that experience, I did that, and sure enough, I had an experience, so in that case, I was propelled to drive to an unknown area, and that's happened other times, too, but that was just a one that's freshly in my mind. Okay. Um, the, uh, the second incident, or well, the first, both incidents, those two early incidents, you said you were shown the earth exploding is that no no that was a, no? that okay. was later that was later uh, one of my adult abductions see i've had many many experiences uh i'm just was sharing the beginning of kind of the discovery process and it was my roommate then witnessing my experience that really cemented it and then shortly after that because that was either either december 89 or january 90 uh when my roommate witnessed uh my abduction and being gone um, but then a couple months later I'm driving with two ma male friends on a mountain road we're taking a road trip and the three of us got taken together from the car and so now they also recall that so here they're taken with me they recall the experience as well as myself and with some physical evidence and whatnot from that so um but uh, that was the beginning of you know my whole discovery process but the one you're you're referencing is uh much later um okay let's, let's come back to that I I, I'm, I'm sorry i didn't want to i didn't want to 
get into that just yet because I, I think there's a, a little bit more that we could talk about before we get to that point because that's a that's a big um a big area that we're, we're going to cover in depth but the this discovery process is really interesting to me and f- from a person who's never had an experience like this that i know of a question came to my mind as you were talking about the being compelled or being you know led in a direction Mm -hmm. how how would a person who has never consciously remembered being abducted how would they know if they've ever possibly had an experience like that there's these various lists of traits that are common to abductees uh, myself and another researcher who's also an experiencer, Nadine Lalich, and I decided to um, compile many of the known lists out there for common abduction traits and, and devise a list that would help people determine if they've had experiences. And you can access that for free via my, my website and uh, which is ufosightingtours.com. And if you scroll down, there's a little brief section of a bio in my picture down there. But in there, there's a, a sentence I just off the top of my head. I think it says, if you think you've had experiences, click here. And that'll take you to a list of 65 traits that her and I compiled from all the known information kind of out there to come up with something that we thought would be comprehensive and is specifically to help people determine if they've had the experience. Now, if you answer out of 65 things, if you answer yes to like 25 or less, like you know, 20 or less, 25 or less, some of the common indicators relate to other paranormal things as well. And so you could have had paranormal or psychic experiences, but not necessarily abduction or contact related. But if you answer yes to 40 or more, pretty much indicative that you've had abduction and contact um, because some of the questions are so specific to that. Um, And then there there are two different um, rope pulls done that uh, show the number of abductees, uh, at least in the continental US, uh, these two different rope poles that added on questions from major researchers in the field determined that there were well over 3 million, I think it was close to 4 million abductees in the continental US alone. But there were the questions, the key indicator questions, they called it, that were tacked on by the rope pole. And they were not grouped together, you, you know, taking a rope pole, you might answer a question like, do you make between 40 and $80,000 or let's say 50, 50 and $80,000 a year next to a question like, do you take a cruise at least twice a year next to a question? Like, have you ever ridden a horse next to a question? Like, have you ever woken paralyzed in bed with a strange being in the room? And then you might, you know, answer another question like, um, Have you ever been politically active next to a question like, do you play tennis next to a question like, have you had a period of a missing time of an hour or more where you and or others didn't know where you were? I'm giving those two examples because those were two of the questions. So, and then the rope organization, and they were mixed throughout all the other questions. You'd answered hundreds of questions. And the rope organization came back and said the number of people, the, the, statistical data showing the number of people answering yes to those key indicator questions 
was roughly 4 million people in the continental US. So there you go. So I, and they were so you, you answering just one wouldn't make it count. You had to answer yet yes to like all the key indicator questions. So you had to answer yes to all of them or the significant number of them for them for them to count you. And they were so specifically related to the experience. But those questions asked in those rubber polls were some of the questions we combined in this list of 65 traits. Like I said, her and I really set out to say, let's gather known lists and all the stuff we know out there and try to come up with something very comprehensive. You know, and 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 that list still stands. We're very proud of it, and it does help people determine. So, in answer to your question, how can people know? Well, I mean, that list will help you determine. Now, of course, if you have a memory of missing time, if you're having a lot of onboard craft kind of dreams, you know, um, if you have someone who's witnessed you having experience, you know, these kind of things start to go, okay, well, then you know the answer to that. But if you're not certain, you know, at one time early on in my experiences, that list would have helped me. Uh, now, you know, there's so much and witnesses and evidence and memories and, you know, it's so extensive that now it's like, you know, absolutely a known thing. I mean, it's, it, you know, it's extensive for me, but, but if someone's just curious or wondering that list will help you determine and yeah you know if it's like 25 or less you're probably having paranormal events and not necessarily contact or abduction related but if it's 40 or more it pretty much means you're having it happen <laughs> see talking to you is kind of unique because you are an abductee and you've also done extensive research with other abductees so i have questions for you as an investigator, but I also have questions for you as an abductee. Do you think it's more common in abductees to be aware of their uh, abduction or is it more common for them to not be? No, more, more common not to. Yeah, more, more common to, to, like me, realizing in 1989 that I'd actually had it happen my whole life. If you had asked me in 1985, you know, I would have said no. Yeah, so that's crazy, you know. So it was 89. And what caused that was having all those sightings. I mean, really good, you know, physical sightings of craft in the sky, you know. And, and those sightings, because I then went, okay, it exists. It's flying in and out of a known military base, covert base. Um, the government knows about it. There, there are, you know, they're flying in and out of that base. There's there's the white Bronco security vehicles out and around us. The local sheriff is there parked next to us. He's witnessing it too. Um, there's uh, 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 helicopters up in the air at the same time. So you go, wait a second. They know full well you know, that this is going on, so, you know, sightings and interaction, that we have craft in our possession uh, as well that, you know, at that time. And, uh, and you go, well, wait a second. And then it's like, okay, the government knows about it. They're lying about it. They're covering it up. It absolutely exists. And also what I saw defied physics. We were seeing things shoot off to the right, stop on a dime, then go left and stop on a dime and then shoot straight up and then do like a falling leaf pattern out of the sky. I mean, we're seeing incredible things. And so I go, okay, you know, this defies physics as I know it and the government's obviously involved. So I had all these major belief systems, like a huge paradigm change from those sightings 
that then allowed my brain to like access those memories. And it, but it wasn't just remembering past memories. I want everyone to understand that. I started to also have current, present, new experiences and including, you know, witnesses and being taken with other people. And, you know, so it wasn't just me, it was the other people remembering and witnessing it as well. And, and so that's when it, that's what made me have to come to terms with, okay, this is really happening. The number of people who witness a craft, what's the percentage of people who get abducted? A lot of people have sightings. A very small percentage of those have abductions. But abductions happen to a lot of people. So, so okay, you could say it this way. Is it common for abductees to also have UFO sightings? Absolutely. Like, People have abductions, also have sightings and contact. So those with, whether you call it abductions or contact and or whatever, the, you know, it's semantics. Okay, so whether it's conscious contact or abduction, either way, it's very common for people with interactive experience to have a lot of sightings. That's very common. But a lot of people have sightings. I mean, the, the statistical data and research out there by major UFO organizations on the number of people having sightings, you guys, it's like two out of every 10 people you meet has had a UFO sighting. It is that common. So, you know, so no, not everyone who has a sighting is an abductee. No. So does everyone who's an abductee have sightings? Absolutely. <laughs> and every, but is everyone having sightings, meaning they're having abductions? Oh, no, 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 no. So the, the percentage of people who actually see a, a, uh, an unknown object is very low percentage that they're going to be abducted. Having sightings does not mean you're having abductions. Now, it, it's one of the indicators. It's one of the 65 indicators, like if you have a lot of sightings. And, and a single sighting, no. Now, if you're having constant sightings, that becomes more, it adds to the evidence. You know what I'm saying? So it's all the indicators, none of them stand alone as you can know just from this thing. It's all of it added together that start to go, okay. There's reason, you know, because there's so many commonalities amongst abductees. But if, but if you're having frequent sightings, and you see a lot of UFOs, and you're having it happen frequently, the fact you're a contact to your abductee goes up considerably. Yes. And if somebody was going out there a couple of times a week and seeing these craft, then they their chances of getting abducted increases. No, no, it doesn't increase your chance of getting abducted. If you're go, if you have a desire to go have sightings all the time, if you have a desire to say, I want to go see them, I need to see them, I'm going to go out and do a CE5, you know, a calling them in kind of event, you know, I'm going to go create the the psychological process to help me, you know, call them in, or I'm going to go out to a hot spot and investigate the fact that there's sightings there all the time. If you feel the need to do that, if it's, you're doing it once a year, who cares, you know, but if you feel the need weekly or multiple times a month to go do that, you would maybe want to question if you're having experiences because what is driving you to do that? And often, those people who are driven to do that are abductees quite often. Most UFO researchers, most serious researchers in the field are actually contactees, abductees. Some of them don't talk about it because of their area of research. They keep that very private. 
but I happen to know quite a few very serious researchers in the field who've actually had personal experiences. So what drives you to really investigate this subject? Are you driven about it? If you're driven psychologically about it, you might very well have had experiences. Okay, so we got way off the topic of your sure. own personal. <laughs> your questions are great, though. <laughs> oh, thank you. I, yeah, I, I was just a curious person, but the um, so let's well, you go. ask the right questions. Thank you. Uh, would you would you continue from where we left off as far as your own personal uh, experiences? And I, I think that was uh, we more or less established in 1989 is when you started to become aware. Yeah, and then you started having witnesses to your abductions and then you, you start having people with you being abducted as well sure. um, so where did it pr uh, progress from that point well as as i said the roommate who who witnessed you know she actually went looking for me and went in my room and i had not left my room i had a period of missing time from my bedroom and she went in there during that time and witnessed that i wasn't there and then later uh, was sitting in her room and saw an alien in the hallway and then she, uh, saw it go into my room fully conscious. She was sitting on her bed in her room fully conscious and witnessed this. So, and that alien being in the hallway and then going to my room happened during that time that I was gone, you know, from my room. So, um, and, uh, and so, and I, of course, also had the memory of the experience and then jumping ahead, just oh, a number so of one, one question, one quick question about that, about that experience that your, sure. your roommate had. Why do you think the aliens, the ETs or the others, why do you think they let her keep that memory? Well, she was, uh, I, I don't know. I, I'm going to, you know, I, I have no idea. I mean, she could have just remembered it because people do remember stuff. They remember encounters and sightings and whatnot and abductions a lot of people remember abductions consciously i mean i've remembered quite a few consciously yes i've also had regressive hypnosis for some of them but i jokingly have always said i remember 80 percent of my experiences 80 percent of the time i mean i have some experiences with full conscious memory that didn't require any regress regression um and and not coming up in dreams and current you know present time experiences that i remember fully consciously and then there's ones where i was blocked and maybe i remember just the beginning or the end and needed regression to get the rest of the memory that I was blocked on. Uh, so I'm not sure, you know, I think a lot of the, the what we call the blocking of memory, a lot of that may be self-imposed. You know, it may not be so much the ETs going, oh, we can't let the person remember. It may be our own inability to cope with it or having to go on with life. You know, that, that happens with traumatic experiences too in someone's life. A lot of people shut off, you know, and, and block out traumatic memories. That's a very, natural psychological reaction so it could be that so maybe the ets you know I, who knows i mean maybe they didn't care that she remembered maybe they wanted her to remember because then she would be able to tell me you know i who knows uh, it, uh, truth is she did remember and had it happen fully consciously um and shared it with me later and that was incredible evidence for me that that experience was absolutely real because of her witnessing it you touched on the thought that crossed my mind and what prompted me to ask the question but it it it's the my my theory on it was and the reason i asked you the question was 
it seems to me like the aliens, um, it's kind of weird to say that for me, but I, I guess that's what we can call them. Is that, is that okay with you to call them that? Yeah, yeah, or extraterrestrial okay. or whatever, okay. others, you know, whatever you want to call them, sure. It's, it seems to me that they want they wanted you to know what was going on. So they let her re retain that memory so she would tell you about it. And that would confirm to you that you're not crazy, maybe. that you I are mean, having I, these experiences. That's, maybe, maybe. Uh, that's just the, I'm just saying that's the thought that went through my head as you were telling me this. Well, because, yeah, it could be any number of reasons. But the one that seems to me the most likely is that right there. Yeah, no, you maybe you, it might very well be, you know, uh, you know, I, I try in my experiences to not figure out their line of thinking. So I just kind of stick to, you know, the, the events and what happened, um, because otherwise you, you can get into just all sorts of pure speculation, you know, yeah, yeah. Um, but but th that idea had crossed my mind, certainly, <laughs> <laughs> you know, yeah. But yeah, you well, you hit on it, and as you're, ex, you know, explaining, or you were answering the question, and then you offered other op, op, options. But I think it seems to me, but you're you're right, man. I'm looking at it from a humanistic perspective, and that's not really fair because who knows what compels them to do anything? That's right. That's right. Okay, so sorry, I didn't mean to derail no, you. Hey, it's okay to speculate. I, you know, it's okay, and and we. As humans, in our psychological process, we always try to make things fit. And of course, we're going to relate other people's actions to our own, because that's how you identify with stuff. So that's, you know, I think that's very natural. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And so you, did you remember after she told you that she saw the alien, did you start to remember like, oh yeah, it was taken at that time? I no, I was after taught we had had a late night discussion um, and I was an office manager at the time and had a project due at work the next day. And so we had a discussion late at night and I and and I realized I was getting to bed like an hour later than I wanted to. So we had a full discussion on exactly what time it was and the fact that I was like, darn, I wish, you know, I wish I had gotten to bed already. And I went and sat in my room, got into my bed, had my covers up to my waist, turned my alarm on next to me, you know, because I knew I was going to have to wake up in six and a half hours. And I'm like, darn, I wish it was, you know, because I have this project due, I wish I was getting more sleep, but okay. So I, I knew if I fell asleep right away, and if I slept the whole time, I'd get six and a half hours. So I had, was very aware of what time it was, sat my alarm next to me, sat on my bed, did a quick little deep breathing exercise just to calm myself down, relax. It was kind of an alarming conversation. I was helping her with something she was going through psychologically. And so I just wanted to calm down so I'd fall asleep right away. Back then I didn't take any kind of sleep aids or anything, you know. And I reached and I kind of go back on my elbows and I reach to turn out the light and just double check, you know, back then I would even now I'll double and triple check an alarm. And I reached to turn out the light and it was suddenly two and a half hours later. And there's no way, I, yeah, I was no way I was sitting on my bed for two and a half hours. I thought I was sitting on my bed for, you know, two and a half minutes max, you know, and I'm like, oh, 
okay, this is crazy. And I couldn't get an image out of my head because I sat in my bed and I said, I wonder what has happened in two and a half hours? What has happened? And I couldn't get an image out of my head of three gray aliens standing next to the bed, you know, bald head, wraparound eyes. Everyone's familiar with the image. And the, the one in the middle, there were three of them, and the one in the middle was like holding a device. And I couldn't get that image out of my head. And eventually I said, this is crazy. I calmed myself down. I got the rest of the way under the covers and fell asleep. And my alarm goes off like three hours later, waking the dead. And I crawl into work and I come home from work. You know, we've all done it, you know, gotten through the day on little sleep, just make it work, you know. And I get home and I'm exhausted. And my roommate, her name was Gail. I had two roommates at the time, Scott and Gail. Scott was out of town on business, but Gail was there. And Gail said, what happened to you last night? And she proceeds to tell me after our discussion, she couldn't sleep and she kept hearing, we had a two-story townhouse that we were renting and she kept hearing noises downstairs and she kept going and looking and nothing going on. She came back up. I had a big gap under my bedroom door and she could tell my light was on in my room. So she knocked on my door, no answer, pounded on my door, you know, knocked again, no answer, pounded. And after like the third or fourth time pounding on my door, she's afraid that something has happened to me because that should be waking me up. I had a small room. I, you know, my head on my bed is probably only six feet from the door. So she goes in my room and I'm not there. So she actually went in my room and saw that I wasn't there and then goes back in her room, sits on her bed. And she's actually sitting there reading, hoping she's going to hear me come home. By the way, during that time that she'd gone and looked, she'd gone out the front door and saw my car parked in the carport. So she knew I hadn't driven anywhere. And yet I'm nowhere to be found in the townhouse and I'm not in my room and yet the lights on. So she goes and sits in her room, sitting on her bed, leaves the door open to the hallway, hoping she's going to hear me come in the front door downstairs and come upstairs. And also there's a flash of light in the hallway. And so she looks thinking maybe I'd brushed up against the switch or, you know, expecting to see me and stepping out of the darkness of the hallway and into her room is a gray alien into her room yeah it, it stepped into her door of her room looked right at her it turned and then went through my closed door like a knife through butter she said it it went into my room after it looked right at her and went into my room wow yeah and so she had gone in my room witnessed i wasn't there and then saw the alien in the hallway or in her room you know stepped into the doorway of her room okay and then uh you know and then jumping ahead man in in the following uh, the following july uh so that was either like i said december or january 89 90 the following july so you know, seven months later i'm driving with two male friends on a mountain road we're on a road trip together in the same car and the three of us got abducted together from the car and then those guys also recall the event and we had missing time. We had a major missing time. We had all sorts of electronic malfunctions with the car and additional electronic equipment we had in the car that was unrelated to the car. Not, you know, it's not related to the car's electrical system at all. And yet that equipment was having malfunctions. And we had had a significant period of missing time. And in the days and weeks to follow, the three of us all had 
bits and pieces of memory, you know, coming forward mm-hmm. over, over, over days and weeks. We kept remembering more and more. We agreed not to talk to each other about it and instead to have our case investigated and start telling an investigator. And at that time, I was already working with the therapist and she eventually did regressive hypnosis sessions on us. And eventually, about two years later, we get together with her for dinner uh, in her, just near her office in Newport Beach, California. And she said she waited till she did two successful regressions on each of us, so on me and each of my male friends. And she said the three of us clearly recalled the identical same experience. Hmm. that our memories were a perfect match. Interesting. W- would you like to relate the experience? Yeah, it's just so people know what I'm about to share is very, very typical in abduction events, or at least the majority of it. Um, our, I, and I'll, t- I'll give a brief version there. You know, <laughs> there's a longer version, um, but our cars stopped on the highway. Um, there are grays in the road. Um, uh, one of the guys freaks out a, a little bit and they come over and open his car door and do what's called mind stare. They look in his eyes and that's very common abduction events and brushes for it and they kind of, he slumps over and they kind of semi knock him out, but then they get him out of the car and he's moving on his own, but he's kind of out of it. The driver of the car, now I didn't know this at the time, uh, my friend Mike, that's his real name, he had had previous abductions and I did not know that at at the time that this happened. But he gets out of the car on his own to show them he's not scared, just kind of, you know, macho thing to say, hey, I'm in control, gets out on his own. But I'm very concerned and I'm yelling at both of them like, Steve, my friend who slumped over, and Mike, I'm going, Steve, Steve, are you okay? Oh my God, Steve, Mike, Mike, what are you doing? You know, I'm kind of freaking out. So the so then I'm immobilized and floated out of the car. Now that's very common in abductions, even though they got out like you'd normally, you know, get out of a car moving. Uh, I was immobilized and floated out. And both guys remember seeing that happen to me you know, that they said, well, Linda, like, they thought I was freaking out. So they, Grace kind of switched me off and immobilized me and I'm floating out. And then I, and I'm immobilized. I can't move. Did you like, like pass through the, the vehicle? No, um, there, there's times when I have um, in vehicles, walls, ceilings, etc., windows, etc., in other events. But in this particular event, there was a hatchback on the car and the hatchback was open and I was floated out the back of the car and I and the guys remember that. So in this case, the door was open and I was floated out. But there, for instance, the event that happened when I was driving home from California, um, that was about three years ago, um, I was immobilized in the car and the car was surrounded by a blue beam of light and I was floated up as if there was no roof to the car like just up in the beam so they're able to displace the roof in time and space or create an opening or you know whatever but I floated up as if the roof wasn't there but there was one experience where um, it was the day after Christmas and I was a department manager in a major retail department store 
at the time. And I was staying with my parents in their house in Southern California. I, I, I wasn't living there. I just was staying there because it was Christmas. I was staying there for two or three nights over Christmas and other family was coming, et cetera, whatever. And it was the day after Christmas. Now, when you're a retail department manager in a major retail store, there's one day of the year you are guaranteed to work unless you're dead. And that's the day after Christmas. And and this was a major department store. So it was like, you know, I, I had to be dead to not be there. <laughs> you know. And uh, anyways, but I go to bed at my parents and I have an abduction. And I remember my initial memory is like this. I am floating on my back over their front lawn and there's bushes there and I go over the the bushes and I kind of feel them and I'm like, I'm outside, it's cold. I'm like going, I'm outside, I'm floating. I had a nightgown on, you know, I said, I'm floating, I'm outside and I'm awake and the full consciousness of, oh my God, I'm having experience was you know, it was like, ah, oh, but I was like, okay, remember this, remember this, you know, like, okay, this is, okay, remember this, like, I really want to remember it, and they passed me through, now, my, my parents' window had, of course, a screen on the outside, and then they were like storm windows, so there were two planes, panes of uh, glass, right, so, so uh, two planes of glass, the screen on the outside. And then my parents had big, thick plantation shutters, wooden shutters with the wide, like three inch blades on it, probably, you know, at least eighth of an inch, if not a quarter inch thickness and about three inches wide. So the, the plantation shutters were closed. So I felt like I went through different frequencies of electricity, like, like, as if there was an electrical charge to the screen, each plate of glass, like I could feel like cold, especially the outside one. And then the, and then the wood shutters felt like a warm sponge. And I felt like I was moved through all that. And I had those sensations. Then get this, I'm floated over my bed. There's three gray aliens around me. My feet are lowered. My covers are kind of pushed back. My feet are lowered onto the bed and then so I'm kind of at an angle and then maybe the kind of the backs of my legs a little but my head and shoulders are still like three feet of yeah that's probably about right three feet above the bed and I realize I'm so conscious I have this split second memory of going well not just memory I had the split second idea of going grab one like one is leaning right over me standing staring in my face no joke and I felt like I had some movement like even though I didn't have a lot of movement I felt like I think I could move my arms so I reacted just really fast because I knew it, if they knew that you know the kid would be up right so I really quick I reached because he's leaning right over me he's got tiny little neck and shoulders and I'm just going to reach and grab him and I reach to grab him and they go from leaning over me, he's right next to me and they're a little further back to moving in the air above me to becoming like a streak to going out the corner of the room, just like, you know, and out. But what that did is it broke off that energy and I was dropped to the bed. 
my parents had textured wallpaper, not real rough, but a, you know, a little bit rough, this textured wallpaper in the room. I, it was just slightly rough, but, but what, what happened is I'm reaching up, right? So when they drop me, I'm going from my head and shoulders and arms three feet above my bed. My arms fly back, they hit the wall behind me. My knuckles hit the wall and I fall on the bed after my knuckles went bam into the wall and I fall twisted going ow. And there'd been this blue glow, the blue light of course is then gone. And I'm laying there on my bed going, what just happened? Why am I in this position? Did that really happen? And the thing that told me it really did is I turned on the light next to me and my hands hurt and my knuckles hurt. And I go, why do my knuckles hurt? And I looked at my hands under the light and my knuckles were red and just slightly swollen. And then later that morning they got even more swollen, but they were slightly swollen and red because where my hands had gone bam into the wall and then like scraped the rough textured wallpaper it's like my knuckles were red a little a little raw not really bad just lightly scraped and red but that's i'm laying there in bed going oh my god it really happened because my knuckles are scraped and red and my hands are from hitting the wall and so at that point i'm like and i'm laying sideways and i had to go into work the next day feeling like i'd been hit by a mac truck you know and um so but, that that was a conscious memory that you had. You didn't have oh, to recover conscious. that one. Oh. Fully conscious. But the reason I shared that was that idea of coming through the different parts of the window was just so pro profound. I mean, it was like, and I'm like, don't freak out, don't freak out. Remember this, remember this. And and when I reached to grab one, they dropped me. So there was no shutting off the memory or whatever. I'm just laying there in bed going oh my God, I just had an abduction and I'm completely conscious. I'm completely, like the whole end of it, I was completely conscious and remained conscious. Yeah. Did you, did you touch it at all or it was gone before you could reach out to it? It was gone before I, yeah, it was gone. Now there are times when abductees have done that. I know one abductee that did grab one once in her bedroom and she said, and I didn't experience this, but, but she said this and it told the story in great detail someone I know quite well. And she said, it, it looked like it should be the consistency of grabbing a marshmallow, you know, but she said it was like hugging a tree trunk. She said, that thing was like, like pure muscle, like, you know, like absolutely hard. I mean, yeah, like a spongy skin on it, like the outside was spongy, but she said, the, you know, like, like you'd grab somebody or, you know, but she said it was solid, like, like solid concrete, like, like a tree trunk, she says, you know, and so she actually grabbed one once, but, and, and I knew, I think I'd heard that story at the point that this event had happened. So it was one of the things that made me go grab it, you know, and I moved, I moved so fast, but man, they dropped me and we're out of there. They're like, okay, done. <laughs> and I go flying onto my bed, you know. Oh, by the way, that, that reaction that you had to grab one, I think that is, yeah, like a, a very, human response to what what's happened like I, I i want to see if i can bring one of these things you know hang on to one of these things or whatever what were you planning on doing if you grabbed no, nothing no no it was just a, it was just such a quick thought of grab it like like not that i would 
do anything with it. it none of that even crossed my mind. It was just like, if I grab it, I'll know this is real. Like if I can feel it, you know? And so, so I went to move very fast. Like I just want to know what it feels like to grab one, you know? And, and it was, it was kind of, it was a moment of defiance, you know, on my part, it was like, ha, you know, like, gotcha, you know? So it was kind of like a, a defiant moment, but they split real quick and I fell to my bed. <laughs> And they continued to come back after that, though, right? That, uh, that wasn't. Oh yeah, yeah. That no, wasn't I, like the last time they, no, they no, came no, after no, you. No, right? no, no. That 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 was uh, that would have still been pretty early '90s, you know, when that happens. No, no, I've continued continued to have stuff. My last experience was. Um, I keep wanting to say two years ago, but now it'd be three. So my last experience was three years ago, and the experience before that was like another two years before that, so or at least a year before that. So I'd say three, like roughly three years ago and five years ago were my last two experiences. Does it seem to be getting uh, more infrequent? Yes, but that is common. Um, I'll, I'll tell you why. Uh, abductions are predominantly about the taking of eggs or ovum from women and sperm from men and the production of hybrids. So the hybridization program. Now, many things happen, but that is still the most common thing. So all abductees have usually some you know, component of that, especially if they've had multiple uh, abductions. It's very, very common. And so that is, for me, I've had ovum taken many, many times. Um, I, uh, I've gone into now uh, menopause. And so I'm thinking because I'm in menopause, uh, they're not interested in the ovum or I'm not don't have viable ones, something like that. Um, I still have some experiences, but a lot less frequently. And I think that may be why and that's very common for women or if men have a, a, an increase or a huge drop in sperm count or something you know so it it does seem as someone gets older that it does taper off yes uh so from your investigative perspective is that the most common reason people are abducted there's a there's a we don't really you know ultimately do we really know why no the ets aren't telling us you know we don't know why but but there's a common things that happen that start to be make it obvious that there are these patterns as to why it's happening um one of the biggest patterns if not the biggest is the taking of ovum from women and sperm from men and producing these hybrid beings that are part et part human this is still even though a lot of other things happen this is still the most common like you know i'll just throw out some loose numbers if it, it out of all abductions i'd say 80 percent have had this happen you know it's that common and um and so and so yes that's what happened with me uh it's it's very very common now other things have also happened in my experiences like that like we were saying the cold war connection being shown uh, Earth's annihilation or destruction and saying, don't ever let this happen, like showing Earth blowing up or bombs going off or or really extreme cases of war, or, you know, and the abductee being told, don't don't let this happen or don't allow this to happen. This is wrong. Those kind of things. That's also a very common thing that happens in abductions. It's not as common as the hybridization program, but it is common. So I'd say, you know, if if 80 percent or 90 percent of abductees have been involved in the hybridization program probably 
easily 60% of the abductees have been shown, or at least 50%, you know, some huge number have been shown uh, um, earth catastrophe, earth annihilation, uh, the after effects of war, those kind of things. How, how common is it for multi-generational abductions to occur? And is that the same, or is it, is your case a multi-generational abduction scenario? Ah, good question. Um, okay, so question number one, how common? It's very, very common. Many, many abductees learn it happened to uh, their parents or grandparents. If you're an abductee, you have kids, it happens to them. You have grandkids, it happens to them. I know of a couple different abduction cases that go back five generations. It's very common in abduction research to have three and four generations. Very, very common. I in my particular story, I only have some anecdotal evidence that it involved, for instance, one of those early childhood memories that we were talking about that I, you know, I, there's just, there's so much, but uh, one of them was uh, uh, driving with family again to go out to my grandmother's in the desert, running out of gas. I was with my mom and a few of my siblings. I believe one of my, one or two of my older sisters were coming later with my dad in a separate car and they get out to my grandmother's before us when we should have been there many hours before them. No, even though we ran out of gas, it was a very brief thing. We were just outside of town, a semi truck stopped. Uh, my brother, who was a couple years older than me at the time, but still a, a, a child, I think it was like 12, he was at the time, uh, got in the car with the truck driver and the truck driver took him to get a can of gas and brought him right back. So we'd maybe been stopped on the side of the road, maybe an hour, but we were supposed to be out at my grandmother's probably before dusk or close to it, let's say seven. I don't, you know, I'd have to really think about that time-wise, but let's say we're supposed to be out there by six or seven at night. My dad and sisters get out there like two hours after us. So if we're supposed to be out there at six, they're out there at eight. We didn't show up till like midnight. And there's no way we were, in fact, when my dad and older sisters get out there to my grandmother's place, when we didn't show up for many hours, they thought we had maybe gotten in an accident or driven into a goalie, you know, or something like that. And they're afraid that, you know, something's seriously wrong. So they call the police and the sheriff. The sheriff, multiple sheriffs, I guess, drive up and down the highway. And in this case, they must have taken our car because they don't ever see our car. They're looking everywhere. They don't see us. And they go back to the house to say, we can't find them anywhere. Well, we were out of gas right on the side of the road. I mean, you know, that you would have driven right past us in our we had a big station wagon at the time it would have been very obvious so um and 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 yet we get out there and they're all upset like what did you guys do and they're like we ran out of gas we got gas and they're like no we had the sheriff go looking up and down the highway and never found you guys and we're like well we were right there you know so none of it made sense now i realize that's that's likely to be a scenario because it had significant missing time you know our no one could see our car you know, on the side of the road. So, you know, suggest to me that's probably another experience. That also involved my family members. And then there was a some experiences. I, I shared a room with one of my sisters growing up. 
and there's a couple of times I remember some experiences with her in the room and um, a particular time that she woke me up saying we were at a family friends had a cabin in Mammoth, California. And this was a second story window with no trees or anything near it. But my sister said, there's a bear staring in the window and woke me up to say there's a bear staring in the window. Well, I recall now that that was actually an abduction event and it was an ET. And I had been back to that property since there was never ever any trees there. <laughs> so there's no way that bear would have had to been 40 feet in the air, <laughs> you know, and no way there's no trees or anything. In fact, there's giant boulders at the corner of the house is built in to these giant boulders that are there. So there's no way a tree could be there. There's these giant, I mean, not like place there, they're naturally, they're part of the ground, you know, giant boulders and, 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 uh, solid rock you know so you go okay you know that you know and so so i think that so again i just have anecdotal evidence but i know of so many cases that involve multiple family members you know i said uh, mike and steve who had the experience taken from the car with me years later when i found out mike had had experiences i go to a christmas party at his parents house and he has an older brother manny and him and Manny's quite a few years older, but growing up, they shared a room together. I, I know Manny was at least three. I think he's like five years older than Mike, but anyways. And I go to this Christmas party and Manny, after, cause he all had heard about the experience and everything. And he said, oh, I, you know, I know about yours and Mike experience and everything. He, and he started to share with me all these accounts of experiences they had had together from the room growing up. And so here's Manny, the older bird, going, oh, yeah, we had a bunch of experiences together, blah, 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 <laughs> you know, and, uh, and I'm like, I'm like looking at Mike going, you never told me this had happened with you and Manny, and he's like, yeah, you know, and Manny's going on and on, oh, yeah, we had a bunch of stuff happen, and, uh, you know, but that's very common. That's a good question, though. Your questions are good. <laughs> Do you have any idea why they would take somebody so young? as you were when you were the first time you you were abducted no i don't know uh yeah um uh, i mean that's very common for abductees um I'll, I'll tell you this it gets into what i was saying about people being shown you know like like the ets have a concern for uh, nuclear weapons um uh, destruction of the planet, destruction of the environment, wars, you know, this kind of thing. And kids are really impressionable. And often it's kids having those experience experiences of don't let this happen kind of stuff. And so the ETs, it seems to be consistently something that comes up in the experiences that they're very concerned about. And I think they're reaching out to children. You know, I don't know if you've seen, there's a new incredible movie called The Phenomenon. I have not seen that yet. Okay, I recommend it. Towards the end of the movie, it's an amazing, amazing movie by, by James Fox. And it's brand new and everybody needs to find it. It's on all the pay-per-view formats look up the phenomenon by james fox you'll find it on you know whatever amazon prime itunes youtube you know whatever you use you'll find it there 
and except for Netflix, because now Netflix is creating their own content, you know, but everything else, everything else, you Hulu, whatever, you'll find it. Okay. Um, I highly recommend it. But in, towards the end, the reason I brought that up is there's two experiences of school kids um, having experiences as young kids on their school ground of a landed craft and ETs passing on a message to them. And, and it's very well done in the movie. These are two very famous cases. Um, but I highly recommend, if anyone's unfamiliar with those cases, to watch this, not only watch the whole movie, it's amazing. The beginning of the movie kind of goes into the history and the whole movie is about disclosure. But towards the end, there are these two cases of school kids, but both times the kids, the school kids were both in both scenarios and this has happened other times. In fact, you had told me previously you've had Preston Dennett on your show. Well, he's written a book about schools and kids having these contact events. So these two experiences and others are included in his, in his book about this. Um, he, Preston Dennett's an amazing researcher and uh, researches various multiple aspects of uh, the UFO and contact scenarios. But he wrote this book, one of his many books is about interaction with school kids. And kids are given these, or, or maybe if it's not just kids at a school, it might be kids playing in a park, but a craft will land and, and ETs then uh, are telling them things like, you know, um, beware of technology and its advancement. Don't let it get out of control where it can damage or end the human race. Um, don't let, you know, be peaceful, you know. And so again, why kids in answering your question? Because they're impressionable and it's, uh, you know, someone just recently said in a comment to me online, we're having the same discussion and they said, well, that's the, the long play program. You know, that's like, wow, to start them young and, and it, it, when they're pressurable to condition them to say, be peaceful, don't be worried, don't blow up the planet, don't destroy the environment, you know, but kids get these messages all the time. That is, uh, that's interesting because that's like indoctrination more or less. Sure. It's the same thing that our, our school system does. Sure. I, I, wow, that's interesting. Okay, that makes total sense from a humanistic perspective. And yeah. again, that's that's how we would look at it. Um, but their intentions is totally possibly something well, different. Yeah, but there's a continuing pattern of this. So that's where you go, okay, what are their intentions? Well, when there's a continuing pattern of them doing that, it's like they're trying to impress upon the kids kind of a save the environment and anti-violence, anti-destruction of the planet kind of thing. Like, you know, so they. Especially, especially when governments adopt a policy of mutually assured destruction as a deterrence. Well, hence why adults, you know, when I was shown earth blowing up, I mean, I thought the ETs blew up earth in front of me. It was very emotional. I actually thought it had actually happened. And then I realized I'm staring at a screen and the whole thing was like a 3D projected image. Uh, but in the moment when it happened, I thought it was real and it was very emotional. And, 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 uh, and E.T. was standing right next to me, staring at me. And I got this clear message. Don't ever let that happen. This is a good point right here to point out a, um, an issue that I have with people that are so skeptical about this phenomena of abductions that they, they won't believe anything that an abductee would say. What 
fascinates me about abduction experiences is that you could talk to two different people from two different completely parts of the country or even the world. They don't know each other, never met each other, and elements of their story, maybe their experience wasn't exactly identical, but there's elements of their experience that is exactly the same. And, and because what you just told me that you had witnessed this explosion of the earth, um, that is the, an exact like retelling of an experience that I, of another abductee that I just talked with. He had a, he had the exact same like experience and he, he was witnessing and it was happening over a period of time where there was multiple destructions or catastrophes on earth. And same thing. He, he realized after it happened, like at first he thought it was really happening. And then he realized afterwards that it was, he was being shown something that was a future potential event. Mm -hmm. Exactly. So I don't understand. How would a, a, a skeptic explain that? Oh, and so you're right. You're right. Exactly. So many things that happen in these experiences from people from, all over the world, different cultures, some people who maybe had an experience, you know, 80 years ago to someone who had an experience yesterday. And yet, th- this is one thing the researchers learned early on, abduction researchers and abduction research organizations learned early on, these people are having the same experiences you know it's very common to go to like a large support group whether your your researcher or your therapist you're working with has a support group or sometimes some of the major ufo conferences as an extra event will have these either early morning or late night you know support groups and you can go sit in and let's say there's 30 40 50 people in there on any given you know time you sit in and you're going to hear people going has anyone ever had this happen and they're sharing something they had to happen and suddenly you see 20 hands go up in the room they all go yeah you know and so that's what helps with those support groups is for the abductee or the contactee to realize oh my god these things that i've had happen are happening to everybody that's the beauty of the support group is like i'm not alone and and the the same exact things I have happening. Everyone else is happy. No, occasionally are there, you know, the outliers, are there the, the, the strange events that maybe no one else has had? Sure. But the majority of them, like everybody is having them, you know, and, and that's why I say, yeah, the be- being shown destruction of earth stuff is very, very common. The, the kind of the anti-war, anti-nuke message is very common. The, uh, the, um, uh, environmental things are very, very common. Um, the taking of eggs, eggs from women and sperm from men and produce hybrids is very common. I mean, there are these things that like all abduction cases have. And there's other stuff too. Those are just some examples, but there's actually many examples of stuff that just happens to everybody. In your experiences, uh, did you ever receive a direct communication like a message from them? Yeah, yeah, sure. Um, now everything's telepathy in the experience, but um, like, you know, like don't ever let this happen or um, help others. Um, yes, I mean, it's all been brief, small things, but yes, the simple answer is yes. 
Well, let's go back to your your personal experiences and how how it progressed until you became actually a, a dove into becoming an investigator. Well, yeah, it started with investigating my own experiences, figuring out, okay, what, you know, what's going on with me? What's happening? Has this happened to other people? Meeting researchers uh, who work with people, going to support groups um, and meeting other abductees. And, you know, and it wasn't like I ever said, oh, I'm going to be a researcher of this. It kind of just was a natural process, you know, and uh, researcher and investigator, because research is like reading, looking up stuff, looking up facts, knowing what's, you know, reading all the abduction research books and, and other UFO books and things about sightings and disclosure and blah, blah, blah. And then investigator is like interviewing, investigation, go, maybe going to investigate or interview people after, after a major sighting event or um, after major abduction or contact event. And, and so you investigate the, the case or whatever, you know, so I've done both. Um, and, but it was at first truly trying to understand what was going on with me that started the process and then led to my meeting researchers and other experiencers. Yeah. Okay. How do you document your, your uh, investigations when you, when you're talking to other abductees or experiencers? Well, I, um, I, I record the interview. I examine okay. and gather their, their evidence, um, whether it's, you know, written documentation, photographic video, you know, I, sometimes I'm better about it than others, you know, admit there's, there's times I'm really good about it. And there's times when I really suck at it, you know, but I, when I'm smart, you know, um, and if it's, a, we haven't even gotten into this, but there's a unique area of research I do, like everyone in this field becomes specialists in different areas. And so I, by default, you know, if you will, become a specialist in what's called the MILABs, MIL for military and AB for abduction. Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah so, I totally forgot yeah, about so, that. So, so, so it's steered that way. Initially, it was general abduction stuff because, again, I was trying to figure out what was going on with me and I was meeting other people that had stuff happen and meeting researchers and, and you know, etc. So that grew and, and it started from self-investigation and led to meeting others and stuff. But then, so when I have a, a, a case, if you will, someone I think is a good Milab case, first I'm going to interview them extensively. And then I'm going to ask them to provide me, whether they're sending me via email or whatever, or if I'm meeting them with them in person, to provide their evidence to me. I choose to focus on evidence-based cases for that because ultimately I'm going to write a book about it. I've been working on one for many years and it's, you know, and actually kind of shelved it with being busy with my tours and stuff here. And so I'm going to kind of almost restart that process um, with gathering from what I already have and new cases I found and stuff. So, um, so the, the, the research is there, the gap, the evidence is there, the investigation, the recorded interviews are, are there. I just need to restart the whole writing process from almost like square one again, because uh, so many things have, have changed. But um, anyway, so I will. And 
but so I'm focused on evidence-based cases because I know so many people have had experiences with that and but for my book I wanted to really present the evidence for it so I admittedly kind of screen out some cases even though they're great cases great stories but if the evidence isn't that strong so it's kind of like what's going to make it in the book the cases that also have the evidence to back them up so going back to your own experiences this was uh, something that um evolved and and started to happen to you is that right yes yeah because I, I i remember that is what like really drew me to you as a researcher and investigator because that's the first time i ever heard that correlation between not only is there alien abductions going on but there's also military abductions so i don't know if we have enough time but i i would like to spend as much time on that as possible and then just save a little bit at, at the end of our conversation for um the message that you wanted to put out there about the disclosure so here i'm dealing with the alien abduction stuff and then all of a sudden all of a sudden in 1993, I suddenly had a different kind of experience. It was August of 93. I'm awoken by military guys in my room who proceed to drug me. And um, now I had I had two back to back experiences in 93 of, of what's called the MILAB event, MIL for military Navy for abduction. And and it's um, one is August of 93 and the other was November of 93. And um, so. Uh, but I'm as I said, I'm awoken by guys in my room in camouflage waking me up, drugging me, putting me on a stretcher, maneuvering me around my room. And I am taken to what I now understand as an underground base. And specifically um, that first time, um, that first time, because uh, I, I admit there, because these experiences are so close together, there's little elements between them that I kind of, you know, confused with which experience. But anyways, that first time I was taken to an underground base and um, they proceeded to do a gynecological um, exam, more than an exam. Um, I understand now because I met a doctor years later who was interested in this experience. I shared it with him. He was a gynecological surgeon and he said i described accurately a very early term abortion procedure mm, wow. i have reason to believe even though at the time i was not i didn't know i was pregnant but now i have reason to believe i may have been it may have been a, a hybrid fetus and this experience i think it, um, what the same doctor said is obviously I had a problem pregnancy based upon the way I described the procedure. He said that suggested there was a, a problem and the fetus had not taken and that 
these guys wanted it. You know, um, it had not taken, was not fully formed and was probably not going to take, you know, um, but that. But, but it, it was still a hybrid. So it had well, alien DNA. Yeah, yeah exactly. Um, okay. I mean, I don't know that for certain, but at the time I, um, I, I was only okay. mildly sexually active at the time. Um, I did not have any reason to think that I was pregnant. I wasn't, I was barely showing what I learned later might have been early signs. Maybe I was also, you know, young and in somewhat denial about it. But um, in this procedure, they did, um, it was very much in like a very controlled clean room environment, like almost like you'd say hazmat, hazardous materials handling, clean room environment. They were in clean so suits. The room was tented. It was air controlled. When they did this procedure, it was very sterile. And I believe that they removed, like you said, some DNA from me for sure. And probably something that wasn't quite formed based upon what this one doctor told me. So um, that's what I think happened in that experience. And then, so that was, uh, and, and I, you know, so I had the memory. I'm like, this is nuts. What is this? You know, am I losing my mind again? You know? And, uh, and then jumping forward to the one in November, because that was just August, November, so they were back to back. In November of 93, I had an experience. Again, I'm taken from my room. And um, in this experience, I was specifically interrogated about a piece of ET technology that it turns out that it is very likely that I had had a previous MILAB event, again, MIL for Military Navy for Abduction, and uh, had been asked to look for this, or if I saw it, to recall what I had seen. And then in this experience was abducted and they went about retrieving that memory from me and having me draw what I had seen. And it was very, very threatening and uh, quite frightening. Uh, but that I did draw a piece of equipment for them that they were apparently very pleased uh, that I had seen. It was a, a minor thing, but I guess it was an important part of something they were interested in and, uh, and, and, and drew that for them. And that was that event. Um, so one was the medical procedure and the other one or the gynecological, you know, medical procedure. And then the other one was specifically being interrogated about a piece of ET technology. And so that's what those two events. And shortly after this, I met other, and at the same time, I was having what you would call harassment surveillance stuff. It's very common in the MILAB stuff before you even have an abduction at the hand of humans that you can have harassment, surveillance, monitoring, um, have your emails tampered with, you know, snail mail tampered with, uh, now people with, you know, uh, different online accounts and social media and whatnot have those tampered with. Or, and you can be uh, threatened or warned. Um, and uh, it, so I was having some amount of that. And then I was having quite a few of what are called black helicopter experiences, 
with these dark unmarked helicopters circling over my property or following me if I drove somewhere, you know, and I started to have a series of those. I'm going to quote one neighbor who lived in front of me. I had this rented this little apartment uh, near the beach in Southern California, and there was a little house right in front of me that was rented by someone else. But the people who lived right in front of me quoting them one day, they said, God, it's just like we live in LA or something and we have helicopters that try to land on our roof because they were noticing that I kept, you know, that we kept having these helicopters hover over the property. And so that's quoting my neighbor, you know, it's like we have helicopters that try to land on our roof. One day I'm awoken by one of these going on and I, I go outside and it's a large military helicopter with big doors on the side of the body of it and I go out and the doors on the side of the body are opening and there's sunset in the distance so I can see like the sunset coming through the open body of the helicopter great big military helicopter and there's a guy crouched down like holding on in the doorway and he looks like he has maybe a headset on or something and he's got a telephoto lens faced right at me <laughs> I think I like waved, you know, there was, there was another time I, um, even before that, um, I lived, uh, I was renting a room from someone in Fountain Valley, a friend of mine with a big house. I rented a room from her for about a year and I kept be, being awoken by helicopters over the roof. But one night I, my bed was right under a, a kind of a long, narrow window above it with uh, mini blinds and I pull the mini blinds apart and I'm looking up and this and I see the runners of the helicopter coming right over the roof. So it's, you know, right over and, and it woken me up a couple of times. And so finally I said, I better look and I see it hovering right there. And I go out in the backyard and the thing's circling over the house and I wanna get a better look cause there's a big tree. So I go out in the front yard and it progresses to like follow me and when I go out in the front yard, it circles a bunch of times under me. Well, there was a, she was on a cul-de-sac at the end of the cul-de-sac, this big tall street lamp. I went and walked under the street lamp. This thing kept circling and I flipped it off. <laughs> and I, I'd stand there in defiance, you know, flipping it off, flipping at the bird. And it circled and, and a, a bunch of times, but I'm thinking, okay, how many times did it circle and hang over the roof to wake me up? at least three or four, and then was hovering right over the roof. I went in the backyard, it had just circled me like three times. I went in the front yard, it had to circle me three times. I mean, it was so obvious. And, and you think, why would they do that? What well, was meant to be intimidation? You know, it was clearly meant to be intimidation. Uh, one, I've also had these experiences where I've been taken with other people, not only in my alien abductions, I've been taken with other people. Just another quick example, besides taken with the two friends while driving, I've had many of these, but one time I was taken from the Hotel Del Coronado in San Diego, California, where 15 of us were taken in an abduction event together. And two different books have been written about that event. One of them by Preston Dennett, and the other one by Yvonne Smith. Now, when Preston wrote it, there were only five people involved. I was not one of those cases, but that's what he thought. But then later, Yvonne Smith kept coming across cases of it and discovered, because I was already working with her uh, as a hypnotherapist and going to her support groups, and um, 
had reason to believe I was part of this event and she ended up regressing me sure enough. And so there's actually 15 people involved in that experience. Um, but going back to, um, I've also had other people taken with me in these MILAP related events. Uh, one of those, a friend of mine and I, a fellow researcher, it was living in uh, down near San Diego, Carlsbad area. Uh, California. And we had an experience taken from her apartment when I was visiting her. And, um, and in that experience, it was specifically to scare the crap out of us. I mean, it was, we were threatened and our lives were threatened in that particular experience. But her and I were going to start writing a book together. We were on the lecture circuit together. And, um, and they literally said, stop doing that. And they gave us both scenarios. She had a grown kids and grandkids at the time, or a grandchild and grown children at the time. And they threatened the family's well-being and proved to her that they knew where the family was and what their daily routine was and that they were being monitored and they had easy access to them. And they said, stop this or something will happen to your family. In my case, they... Uh, threatened me with physical violence against me and and said drop it or this this will happen so both both of us were threatened in that experience to to stop researching she had more escalate shortly after that and did drop out of the field for many years uh i did lay low for a little while and then kind of came back but not uh, not long but my threats and warnings were not as severe as as hers uh, she continued to, to have that happen. But so that that was to be threatened warning. So some people have threats and warnings to drop out of it. Some people have follow up medical stuff happen like I did. And some people um, they have an interest in, in in maybe recruiting them into covert operations and covert activities. Um, and sometimes it's uh, they're interested in psychic functioning, psychic paranormal functioning. They're always asking about alien agenda and motives. Um, they're they're very concerned about the alien agenda. And if you've been shown those Earth catastrophe things and reactions to violence or blowing up the Earth and those things, you know that's one of the things that the covert human guys, like covert military, covert human uh, individual, individuals want to know. And if you've had technology like me, hands-on with the technology, many, many abductees have hands-on with the technology. They've been, uh, they are shown navigation, propulsion systems of craft, uh, alien languages, alien math formulas. If you're one of those abductees who's had the math and the formulas or languages or, or navigation propulsion uh, computer systems on board the craft, any of that stuff, you're going to be of interest to these covert guys. I, I can understand if you don't want to say specifically where you were living at the time where this started. No, I don't, I don't mind. I don't mind saying. Oh, by the way, a, a quick thing on that same note, that same roommate who had witnessed my, you know, back in late 89, early 90, the missing time, you know, my being gone from the room and the alien in the hallway, Gail, Years later, I met up with her. I ran into her in a bookstore and we'd lost contact for like four years. And I ran into her and we got together and I go visit her where she lived in her apartment. And she said, are you still investigating all that stuff? I said, yeah. And she said, oh, what are you working on now? And I went into the mill lab stuff and she suddenly interrupts me and says, oh, I'm so glad you know that now. 
And I went, what? Yeah, exactly. What? What do you mean? I know that now. And she said, well, back when she was living with me, besides witnessing the alien abduction stuff, she was witnessing some of that stuff going on with me. And she had a 14-year-old daughter that came to live with us for like three months. And the 14-year-old witnessed stuff. Now, I was given a story back then of why the 14-year-old came to live with us and then why she left. Well, Gail then admits to me, that's not why her daughter left. Her daughter left to go live with her to go live with Gail's sister, her uh, daughter's aunt, because the daughter was so freaked out by witnessing what was happening to me. And she said on more than one occasion, her and her daughter were woken up by what sounded like military men in my room, giving me orders and my crying and pleading, no, no, no. And here she's sharing that that had happened back in 1990. And I didn't know I was having those kind of experiences till 93. And this is years later where she's saying, well, back in 1990, you were, we, we were witnessing stuff happening to you. So apparently I had it even before 93. I just was unaware of it. And it's not just me. You know, I mean, I want you to know I've worked with hundreds of people that have had this happen. I mean, this is, this is happening to a lot of abductees. Is it all abductees? You know, like you said, oh, do all people have sightings have abduction? No, you know, but all abductees do have sightings. But do all abductees have this happen? No. There are numbers that are in the abduction research community that suggest like 12%, but that's on the, have you actually been re-abducted by the military, had an abduction at the hands of the military? All the harassment, surveillance, monitoring, you can be befriended by insiders, which has also happened to me, as you know, you know, befriended by insiders. All those extra parts of it I actually think it's very, very conservatively 40% of abductees. I, I wouldn't be surprised if it was 60% of abductees, but I'll be real conservative and say at least 40% of abductees are having all that stuff happen. So let's start where you first realized you were being abducted by military personnel. Well, those were those experiences in 93. Where were you located and what military bases were in that vicinity that you know of? Okay. Uh, both of those experiences, I because it was back to back, August and November, I was living in a little studio apartment in Corona Del Mar, California, um, which is between for those for me it was Southern California between Newport Beach and Laguna Beach, the coastal community. So that's where I lived when both of those experiences happened. Um, I was in Tustin, California when I had when Gail was my roommate, and those experiences were happened, and those were actually um, obviously two years before, two or three years before that, uh, three years before that. Yeah. And, um, and I've had it happen in other, you know, other places. I've had it living here in Sedona. I've had it happen. Um, I was part of a large mass military abduction here in Sedona that involved myself and uh, one, two, three, four other friends. So five of us were taken together myself and four other friends in that experience. And two years later, a guy came on my UFO sighting tour who um, he, he came out and wanted to come meet with me privately the next day and came with his mom the first day, 
the next day after the tour and him and his mom had come on the tour with me. He, he was a grown man, but he had his mother with him. And they shared with me previous alien abduction events they'd had. And then she gets up to go use the restroom and he says, will you meet with me privately tomorrow? I don't even think I want my mom to know that I'm being with you again. I said, sure. And we made those arrangements. So, you know, and mom was the word, you know, when she came back from the restroom. So he met with me the next day, actually took me out to lunch and he proceeded to share some mill-up events he had had here in Sedona. And he proceeded to share one that was a large mass group event of like 100 abductees. He starts to share the details. Well, he this was two years later. He's telling me the details. And he was one of those other people in that same experience. When the five of us were taken together, we were taken to a large underground installation and there were many many abductees involved and he was one of the other people because his when he shared the experience with me it was identical to what happened to us i mean it was clear he even knew the date i mean it was uh, i think it was 2011 november 15th i'm pretty sure it's when and he so he knew the date that it had happened and sure enough it was it was the same as ours and so he so two years later i meet someone else involved in that same experience i've never met anyone again he was the only other one other than the five of us but here's a complete stranger who was part of that same mass event. In what uh, relation were were you living to a military installation? Okay, good question. Um, when I was taking my friend down near San Diego, uh, uh, Carlsbad area, we remembered we'd been carried, drugged, carried out of her apartment, put back in the back of a van. Uh, down on the street and there was all sorts of physical evidence to the apartment and the exterior of it and everything and um, and even reports from a neighbor who witnessed part of it or something you know and so we remembered the way the van got on the freeway and the down in that area well if you go a little you know if you go just you know uh, basically half an hour north you're talking Pendleton half an hour south you'd be talking um uh Miramar and uh, yeah Miramar Naval so we thought about it in the way the van must have gone to the freeway in the direction it got on and we're fairly certain we went to Miramar Navy, yeah Miramar right? Naval Base which but it's yeah but it's the inland base you know but yes it is Navy but so we have reason to believe we were there versus Pendleton after much debating about you know well how did it which direction do we think we must have gone based upon the van making the loop to get on the freeway to go south? You know, so anyway, so there you go. Um, and then here, we don't have any known military base right here, but there's a lot of uh, a lot of evidence that suggests the fact that we have a deep underground military base. That's called a DUMB, D-U-M-B, deep underground military uh, base out here under part of the Sedona surrounding area. So in that case, we were taken there. And this other gentleman two years later recalled the same location as my friends and I. Um, and I've had other insiders and witnesses and people who, who and other abductees that feel that they were taken there. Um, one of the times I was taken from Crone Del Mar, the other time I'm not certain where I was, but one of the times um, I have really good reason uh, multiple reasons to think that I was what's called China Lake Annex. Part of China Lake, uh, which is again, naval base, um, 
it inland uh, near the Lancaster Palmdale area of Southern California. And it's a large military base. And um, I've had now six different insiders confirm that I was taken there, independent of each other. When asking me about it and my saying where the buildings were and the way it was laid out and the part and then the underground tunnel system. I've had six different people go, oh, you were at China Lake without even my bringing it up. They brought it up. And so I've had six different, well, I should say five different insiders who said, oh, you were at China Lake. I've been there and say I'm describing it accurately. And one guy, I don't know if you've heard the term super soldier before, but some people can get recruited deeply into these programs. A gentleman who claimed to be a, a super soldier um, I'm at a, a conference with him. We're sitting in the coffee shop. He's some of his friends there were asking him to recall this time he was in what was called a jump room, which is like a for you know it's crazy as it sounds like a teleportation facility. And I recall being in such a thing in my own experience at that location. And he starts recalling when he was there, and my jaw hit the table. I feel like he's recalling my experience. I mean, everything about it, with the exception of one minor detail, everything else was a perfect match to what I remember seeing. And here's a guy relating the whole thing in great detail. And I'm like, oh my God, he's describing the exact place and everything. But the only difference is that there, there were these security doors that when I, because we figured I had been in that facility 20 years before him. <laughs> Or about 15 to 20, I have to think about the years, at least 15, but I think about maybe let's say 18 years before him. What I remember is the security paths that the guard who was escorting me had to put in a punch number and put his thumb on it. So it was like a thumbprint thing, right? When he went through those same security paths, you put in a code and then you leaned into an eyepiece and it was a retinal scan. So everything 18 years later was identical, except they had replaced the thumbprint signature you know, <laughs> entries, security entries to a retinal scan entry, but other everything else matched. And, uh, and sure, it would make sense that 18 years later, they probably updated the, the security you know, requirement. So, um, and that is, you know, anyways, so I, I had every reason to think that guy had been there because, <laughs> it, you know, for me, it validated that he had been there and it validated that I had been there because he's obviously describing the exact same thing. It's kind of hard for me to formulate these questions because they, you know, I'm, I, I wanted to ask the right question in the right way to prompt the, uh, you know, to the prompt the best response, but. You're doing, you're, I'm, not, I'm not doing this to butter you up. You are really doing a great job. I mean, you're asking for someone who doesn't know about these things. You're asking the right questions and very thoughtfully, which I appreciate. Thank you. I, I do appreciate you saying that. The military had some way of knowing that you had been a, 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 an abductee, an, an extraterrestrial abductee. Did you ever have any indication how they knew about that? Not that anything they shared with me, but over all the years of research and working with other cases, I've come up kind of with a list of ways they might know. Um, for instance, uh, originally I thought 
this was happening to the abductees that had gone public. So you've been public, you've been interviewed, they're monitoring what's being said, and you know, they're going to know. And for some people, that may be the case, you know. But I've also met people that have had this happen, and even children involved and whatnot, that no one ever, ever went public. And you go, well, how would they know? Well, abductions run in families. It's also, there's a lot of research or information within the mill lab research to suggest that that runs in families too. So it, if abductions run in your family and also the mill lab stuff, they could know that, okay, you know, this, this abductee that we're already following or studying has children, well, we're now interested in their children. So in a lot of times in the cases of children, it happened because it was already happening to the parents. Um, so the mill lab stuff runs in families as well. Then there are all these common traits amongst MILAB cases, for instance, um, family background stuff like, um, not that was your family ever was any family member or father or grandfather in the military because people you're in my age, that's would be, you know, 90% of people, it's that common, you know, World War II, et cetera, right? Okay, way common. So I had to rule that out, it was too common, but it was more like, was there a connection to, top secret military stuff or or um, covert stuff or, or special operations, special forces, special operations, covert stuff, those kind of things. Then there were things like um, um, was a father, grandfather, uncle part of a secret society that was coming up. Um, things like um, um, were they in the aerospace community? Uh, were they in top secret aerospace stuff? Were they in any other kind of top secret research or science? You know, are the you know? So there's this aerospace connection, this um, uh, secret society connection, special forces connection, uh, high level um, military brass connection. You know, these kind of patterns, and it's not exact for everyone, but there are these patterns that start to show up amongst my cases. And, um, and also did it run in the family, you know, so there are these patterns. And so I'm coming up with someone has some combination of all that. Now, another thing is, I now know, and have good reason to, to know this, that we have had satellites up to track sightings much longer than anybody gives anybody credit for, that we track we, meaning the US government and world governments, track sightings going on and um, craft coming and going, extraterrestrial craft coming and going from our atmosphere regularly. If they have craft consistently showing up in an area, I think they know it. If they have craft consistently showing up over a particular succinct area, like a neighborhood or a couple houses, they then might monitor the communications, emails, phones, etc., for the people in that area to see if anyone's talking about it. So um, I think that they're monitoring the whole subject much better than anybody realizes. And uh, so even if it doesn't run in your family, even if your family doesn't have those connections, they could be monitoring the fact you're having alien abduction stuff, which would flag you as a pertinent person of interest. Now, are they interested in all abductees? Obviously not. But again, if you've seen the technology stuff, 
if you've had multiple ongoing, you know, to quote another researcher in the field, he said it's like only the really advanced ab abduction cases have this happen or advanced contact cases. Advanced doesn't mean better, it just means you're having a lot happen with a lot of evidence. That if you're one of those people, they might show interest in you, uh, especially if you have all that technology component to it. You know, it, th there's a reason. Now, some people just have low-grade harassment surveillance and never have anything more happen. You know, I have this chart, I give presentations, and I show this curved line on this chart showing how it can ramp up in someone's life and how it can go back in your family so even alien abduction is not the beginning of the line it's like it's like a quarter way down the line and then the line ramps up and you can go from harassment surveillance monitoring befriended by insiders being picked up and interrogated having a medical procedure all the way into being recruited into psi programs psi functioning paranormal functioning programs and and being recruited into like super soldier stuff and even being a perpetrator of these events some of the perpetrators are guys who were somewhere else along this line before you know so i have those cases i have people that have gone like i i put myself my own experiences in like the middle of this line and i have cases that have a lot more happen than me and i have lots of cases that just have harassment surveillance and never have anything more. They don't have the what the reabduction being picked up. And another thing is very common in these, and this is like it doesn't already all sound outlandish, but I'll go there, is is people see aliens present in these experiences. In some of these experiences, it's clear that these covert humans and extraterrestrials are working together. I mean very clear. And and I've had that happen. And I've worked with many cases uh, that have had that happen. The experience that I was taken to the large underground base here with my five friends and then two years later met the other guy who had also been part of this experience, that experience clearly involved humans and ETs working together. And so that's very commonly seen. Sometimes someone can have an alien abduction and see military personnel present, not like they've been like this military personnel also got abducted, but like these military personnel or people in lab coats are there in some kind of official capacity, you know, and then and, and then you can be taken to one of these underground bases and it's very common to see aliens also present in whatever, you know, sometimes some limited capacity, but it's very common to see them there. So not everyone has that. So again, see, this is that curved line. That's like the middle of the line. Some people have a lot less. Some people have a lot more. People who've seen aliens and military together, that's about the middle of that bell curve that I have. Something popped into my mind when you were talking about the recruitment level. Uh, you, you know, you say that that's kind of the pinnacle of of what the my lab uh results in is that they recruit people into well, not, a, not a everyone does but some people do yeah uh, and so some of those people are are used for as perpetrators as yeah you said. i have i one case that really sticks out is a guy is a is a guy uh who first approached me about alien abductions then opened up that he was having this and he as he became more comfortable with me he ended up opening up um, that he had been used in that way. Now, in his case, against his will, he felt very, very badly. He also feels he made himself undesirable in that, and that 
he got dropped out of the program. But um, it, long story there, he also had some high level family political connections that uh, may have helped in some way um, get him out of it. But he he started as an alien abductee, then got had the Milab stuff and eventually got recruited and found himself being on a you know team of people picking up other abductees and and it very much upset him and he didn't want to do it. I also know that's one extreme, one end of the scale, if you will. On another end of the scale, I know of a of a super soldier guy that gets recruited, gets involved as a perpetrator, and enjoys being part of it. He feels like he's in on the secret. He knows what's going on, and he actually waves almost romantic about it, which you know is kind of sadistic, yes, but you know that's his experience. So he relates it to that way and yet this other guy got himself out of doing it because he um once you know he realized that was really going on he made himself undesirable in a way and luckily they seemed to have left him alone and he actually didn't want to talk or go public much about it because he didn't want to do anything that might encourage them to have interest in him again he said i don't want to do anything that causes me to be on their radar you know, so he talked to me because he wanted me to know and he wanted me, you know, I talked somewhat about this kind of stuff. And he also felt like he, it was, you know, for his well-being to be able to talk about it with someone that he trusted. But, um, but it, you know, I can never use his name or anything like that. He'd probably prefer, I don't talk about him at all, but I talk about it in such loose ways, no one will ever have any idea what I'm talking about, but, or who I'm talking about. But, um, but uh, uh, you know, I can't not share that because it's such an important story. Um, but and these are just, and these are just two examples. Now, again, this is a, a, a small percentage of an already small percentage, but, but, you know, it, it made me realize too, sometimes the people involved in these things, you know, can they be, you know, someone that they're looking for a certain personality type or whatever to be involved? Yes. But you could also be a, a victim yourself and be in it in a kind of victimization way, like this, like my, my other case. So, and I've, I've had both, I've had multiples of both. So, uh, as far as people I've worked with. So, I realize you know, sometimes the people in the programs are victims themselves, you know, and that made me have a certain amount of compassion and understanding. Uh, just like, you know, when people go into the military, let's say, we all can be patriotic and believe the necessary for the military and these people are heroes and stuff. But sometimes those people are put in very bad, very difficult situations that maybe go against their greater good you know and yet we can understand how that happens well i can understand how these people end up being in this you know and and yet and yet i can also understand the appeal for some people because they're in on a very in deep secret and they know part of that and they feel elite and very special and they probably that's part of probably some of the people getting recruited in these programs is people who are going to to have that ego gratification from it have you ever come across any evidence uh, or testimony from insiders that this program is part of a breakaway 
uh, what is it called? Breakaway, Breakaway government? civilization. Yeah. Apparently, that's a quote from Insider Kit Green, is my understanding, that quote about breakaway civilization. Um, but yeah, that there's a shadow government, you know, uh, shadow military, you know, we're talking very deep, uh, you know, deep in what are called SAPs and USAPs. SAPs are special access programs and USAP is unacknowledged special access programs. And so that's where, you know, and that's you get into the reverse engineering programs, the technology development programs, the creating craft that's ours um, and or or has applied some alien technology to our known technology. There's examples of that as well. And then you get into things like this, the, the, the Milab cases and super soldiers and everything else and the aliens and underground bases. So there's levels of secrecy, you know, and and uh, and levels of how it's covered up through the SAPs and USAPs, you know. Are these also where the men in black originate, possibly? Well, yeah, men in black can refer to many things. Traditionally, it was believed that these were maybe some kind of otherworldly being, and they may be. So there may be a hybrid situation as MIBs or something like that. And, um, I wouldn't rule that out. And then there are, like I've been threatened and warned and you know, I know an abductee that had guys in suits come to her door and threaten her, you know? So so you go, okay, you know, there, there seems to be very surface level. So, you know, when another human and in a official or semi-official capacity seems to be threatening or warning you, I think you can throw that in the MIB category, you know, whether whether they're a hybrid being or fully human, you, you know, again, I, I think it can kind of be, yeah, so yes, I, it can be lumped together. I, I, I think for simplicity and understanding, for, <laughs> I was about to say for simplicity and understanding the complexity, if that makes any sense, <laughs> you know. Yeah, it's, um, I think we barely even scratched the surface on this MyLab uh, topic. And we could talk about this for a, a, long, a lot longer because I have so many more questions. But I, I would like to switch gears and go, uh, unless you have something else that you want to say that's really important. Well, I'll, about I'll just MyLab. say this about it, kind of in conclusion for now, you know, is... Um, the reason there's a covert human involvement in abductions and contacts and why they're interested in those individuals is first and foremost some of the strongest evidence for abductions and contacts being real. The pe people, humans, me, friends of mine, you know, other cases, you, you know, whatever, people are involved with ETs, having contact with, as you say, others. Uh, extraterrestrials, you know, folks that clearly aren't from here, or aren't, or if they are, they're from another dimension here, you know what I mean. Okay, so you go, clearly not us, and yet people who are us are interfacing with them. The UFOs have always, the presence of ships, you know, craft, and the presence of the beings, extraterrestrial presence has always been of interest to those who are running government and the military. I, I think there's evidence that they've always been of interest, but you can clearly point to 
very uh, aggressive interest since the early 40s, 1940s. I mean, I think it goes way, way back, thousands of years, but you know, you can say aggressively since then. And then you go, okay, they've had this strong interest and they're trying to get a hand. Those managing the ET subject in an official capacity are trying to get a handle on the extraterrestrial presence. What does it mean? Why are they here? What are they doing? What does it mean for the future of mankind? Is there, are there militaristic and threat concerns? I understand, you know, all that thinking. The cover-up scenario? Well, the cover-up only becomes in, in, we don't know all the answers, I think is where they came to from this, is they don't know all the answers. They're trying to figure it out. So rather than show that they don't know, they cover it up, okay, because they don't have all the answers. There's there's a logic there, and I think there's a lot of insiders and people that would agree with me on that. But the other part is they've been, there's a whole subculture, like you said, breakaway civilization, that is got a lot of money involved. You have everything from the building of these underground installations in the billions, if not trillions of dollars. And the money siphoned from that and look the other way through the SAPs, through the USAPs, the Unacknowledged Special Access, Access Programs. And then you have this whole problem with some of this subject went into corporate hands and it became a corporate secret. We have a lot of reasons in the UFO community to know now that that's the case. And the aerospace community has been fed a lot of this and the whole reverse engineering program has been brushed under the rug. So that point that you have the development of technologies, the building of craft or feeding that technology to military operations and everything, it becomes a matter of national security. That combined with they don't have all the answers, I think th there's a combination of those things going on that lead to why we have, quote, a cover up, okay? And, and there were reasons for that that may have now changed. So we're getting disclosure now because the, the reasoning, it could be, it's more beneficial to disclose than not to disclose, obviously. So, I, I mean, it's, you know, I can see why the, that scales. It goes with the whole politics of the world that we already discussed that this whole, you know, interview started with. So you go, okay, there could be real reasons for, for that. And, um, but going back to my point being that the mill abs are happening because of all that is happening. We, the abductees became another data point. If you're talking about an, an intelligence community managing, and I'm not saying the intelligence community, but you know, covert breakaway civilization, whatever you want to call it. Okay. If you have an intelligence community with that kind of managing that whole subject and managing the cover-up, if you will, managing the extraterrestrial presence, managing the reverse engineering, that they could see abductees as, as twofold. One were, were problematic as a leak of information. So I could see why they might want to threaten you and quiet you at times, kind of keep a little bit of a lid on it, but also that you're a, a data source. They can learn about alien abductions, modus, technology, psi abilities, paranormal abilities, uh, like I said, the, the technology, um, and uh, 
genetics. Uh, you know, are you part hybrid? Do you have a change in your genetics? Have they changed your genetics? Are your children hybrids? All of these things they can learn from the abductees. We become data points for that information. So I, so not only are, is it really strong evidence that we're really alien abductees and contactees, the fact that these guys are interested, but also these guys being interested speaks to what are they interested in? What are they wanting from us as sources of data? And there you go. So to me, that's why the subject is is so important and needs to be addressed within the abduction research community and the overall UFO research community. I think what you just said makes it crystal clear how important the book that you're writing is and needs oh, to thank come you. out. I appreciate that. Thank you. I feel, I feel it too. Now I, now I just need to create the time to do it. Jeez. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. 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 The time. Yeah. 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 You know, the, <laughs> but the question is, you know, would, would, until that resource comes out for people to, to go to and reference, are there any other places of uh, that, that somebody interested in this topic can look to and start a, a research or an investigation into this area? Uh, sure, to my own horn for just a minute, but I've done many interviews on, on these things like I am with you, but also I have two presentations, the, the, the most updated versions where I did them both a year ago, but because of COVID, I haven't been asked to speak anywhere you know obviously conferences are on hold and so i haven't had a reason to go in and update these again but i updated them for this um so on on youtube are these uh, two presentations i did for ufo denmark so ufo research group in denmark had me do a skype presentation both of them are two and a half hours long one of them is all about my millabs research a little bit about my experiences, but mostly about the, the research, the evidence for it. So that's the Milabs presentation. And then the other one is the 40 year history of the working group, which gets into the group of people behind the current disclosure story. And they have actually like a 40 year history involvement in, in the UFO subject and UFO community. So I give that presentation. So I recommend that people watch both of these. I would say start with the Milab one. And at the end of that, I touch upon some of the other stuff and then, then, then it would make sense to follow up with the second presentation if you're interested also in the disclosure, uh, current disclosure story and what's going on. Um, so both of those, and they were for UFO Denmark and they can both be found easily on YouTube. Um, so you're, what you're involved in right now, and you touched on it a few times while we were talking, that's the disclosure by the military government, I mean, by the U.S. government. And um, do you want to talk a little bit about that? And then I'll maybe ask you some questions and then we'll close it out. Sure. Um, and by the way, thank you for having me on. You know, I think we've done a lot today to bring a lot of clarity to these subjects. And I have people asking me all the time, where can I get information on you about this or this part of your experience or this part? And I like that this becomes one place where I can send them with, you want an overview on my alien abductions, you want an overview on my Milab stuff or an overview on the disclosure stuff. It kind of becomes a, a, a you know, 
one place shopping, you know, <laughs> you know what I'm trying to say, you know, <laughs> you know, and, um, um, and thank you for that, because, because that'll become an incredible reference for me. So, you know, folks out there, I'm not getting paid to do any of this. Why would I do this? Well, it's for informing people, getting the information out there and having, a, again, a resource where I can send people to say, here's an overview, you know. Uh, okay, so talk a little bit about your involvement in the disclosure process that's ongoing right now. Well, I mean, like many people in the field, in the UFO field, I'm just following it. So to that degree, you know, it's just I'm someone following the story. But because of that 40-year history, the working group stuff that I've, you know, I've been involved in the UFO subject now for 30 years. I've been public as an abductee for 28. But with the Milab stuff, there started to be this crossover into like you were saying the the we were saying the you know breakaway civilization, shadow government, you know, uh, you know, a secret space program, all those things, you know. So because of that, I started to realize that there were players in the field who who have fulfilled a, a role in disseminating information or manipulating it, you know, all along and, uh, and, and yet are insiders. So, you know, the UFO subject being real, like I said, you know, not only involves the Milab interest, but involves, you know, players and individuals who get involved in the field who are insiders, whistleblowers, um, it can be both a control measure where they're in the field to control its flow of information or direction, or they can be there just as monitors of the control of flow and information. Like they're just monitoring, you know, officially or unofficially or, or, and they could also be in there to, to maybe look for that opportunity to be the whistleblower or the person coming forward. And so we've had these individuals all along. So I started to realize and it started with investigating my Milab stuff that I kept coming across certain names and people. Now, I could spend hours talking about that. And one is, it would take too much time. B is I don't need to because I can sh tell people watch that presentation on the 40 year history of the working group. But that's how I became involved in the disclosure topic. And, and it's morphed over the over the years. Um, to finding various individuals associated with this group of people. And we have a current incarnation of some of this group. It's kind of morphed over time into what we now know as the To the Stars Academy, the ATIP program, you know, and now very recent morphing into the uh, uh, UAPTF, the uh, Unidentified Aerial Phenomena Task Force. I tell you, when you get tired, that starts to get hard to do. Okay, but the Unidentified Aerial Phenomena Task Force. Now, now I think the part to tell your audience, you know, we, we can always cover this more later, but I think the part to really share with them is we're getting or on the verge of getting disclosure from the U.S. government on the, at least the UFO subject. And this has been developing over two years, um, it, it, almost over three years. It's really been in developing, but this year it kicked into high gear. Now, I'm ki I kind of think the easiest way to do this is start with the 
current and then go backwards, maybe if you have questions for me. But I think the most current thing to share with them is we have right now um, the Senate Select Committee on Intelligence, SSCI, is a branch of the US Senate, a, a subcommittee that is co-chaired by Senator Mark O. Rubio and Senator Mark Warner. So it is not, you know, leaning towards one party or the other. It's co-chaired by a Republican, again, Mark Rubio, and by a Democrat, Mark Warner. It has eight Republicans on it and eight Democrats. And it is the Senate Select Committee on Intelligence um, does the budget approval for intelligence operations that need Senate approval. <laughs> Let's put it that way. And, um, and they released a report on the fact that in next year's, or so the 2021 intelligence bill, would uh was was going to be the funding okay the you know the bill allowing for the funding of additional intelligence projects and funding for the intelligence community now the intelligence community being of course all the three and four letter acronym names you know intel branches of intelligence and branches of the military and, and military intelligence you know a crossover and so they put out a public report saying that they had, um, uh, you know, here's the things, it's kind of an overview report for the public saying here's what is going to be included in, in this, you know, bill. And they put this out after it had passed the Senate. So the Senate passed this and you have this report that goes out. Well, there's these eight line items in the report about the funding of what we now know in the community as the UAP task force, which from all evidence is a continuation of what we know as the OSAP and ATIP programs. ATIP was Advanced Aerospace Threat Identification Program and it morphing into this task force and that we do know in the community over the last so in the UFO community, UFO research community, that over the last year or more were these closed door sessions for senators and congressmen with high level military witnesses and insiders. And that this was put together by the folks with what we know as To The Stars Academy, combined with the Department of Defense and mostly the Navy. So the Navy and To The Stars brought this together, the Navy kind of made it happen, to have these closed door sessions with briefings to senators on this uh, Senate Select Committee on Intelligence about specific UFO cases, uh, mostly focusing on ones that involve the military because of the Navy's involvement involving the Navy, um, etc. Okay, so these eight line items are for the funding and the purpose of the UAP. And by the way, the new terminology to replace UFO 
by the US government to get away from the ridicule factor and the stigma, negative stigma associated with the term is the term UAP, unidentified aerial phenomena. So just know if you hear a senator, a congressman, and you will hear this, and you'll hear it lots more this year and even more next year, if you hear the term UAP or UAP task force, it's unidentified aerial phenomena, which is they know very well that it means UFOs, unidentified flying object, unidentified aerial phenomena. Hello, same thing. Okay, so that's the new government term to get away so they can talk about. So senators, congressmen, the, the president, um, the Department of Defense, the Department of the Navy, uh, ONI, Office of Naval Intelligence, um, and the Pentagon, the DOD, you know, so they, and, and even going into like NASA and JPL, you know, so everyone could be talking about this and have it be like, oh, what's that? Oh, okay, how interesting, you know, without having people go, oh yeah, right, UFOs, ha ha ha, you know. So they can be talking about in a serious way. And so you will hear journalists talking about this, uh, you know, television, radio, newsprint, you know, journalists. Uh, it's made the front page of the New York Times already uh, three times this year and twice in the year before, you know, uh, front page of Politico, front page of Washington Post, etc. So you will be hearing this. And when you hear UAP, just know that they are, they know that they are talking about UFOs, regardless of what they call it. So, um, and, and so the, the eight line items talk about the fact that they're supposed to be uh, the task force that they're going to gather. And the task force is through the Pentagon and the DOD, but it is being run by the Navy, Office of Naval Intelligence, and that they're going to go to all the various branches of the intelligence and the military and gather what they know, not on all things UFOs, because that would be years. You know? Okay, but gather to start with my understanding is according to the line items is what specifically is known about incursions into military airspace, military fields of operation. I almost wish I had it in front of me. I could read the wording, but I, I, I won't bring it up. I'll just try this from my head. But fields of operation, incursions into military airspace, military war operations, military training operations, training facilities, military bases, you know, anything involving the military and their airspace, including getting back full circle the beginning of this talk into um, nuclear weapons facilities, flyovers, uh, and them shutting down nu nuclear uh, missiles, nuclear uh, weapons storage facilities, um, where they have either activated or deactivated. And you and I were talking previously about Malmstrom Air Force Base and Minot Air Force Base, and of course the Bentwaters case, and there's there's many, many where, where there seems to be this interaction with nuclear weapon storage um, and very famous cases. Um, and so that kind of data as well. There's some debate whether it'll go so far as to get into anything regarding crash retrievals because that's the military, but that gets more out of airspace incursion into actual land aircraft you know, ships, but maybe. But anyway, so this kind of stuff is supposed to be what is gathered and from, from the beginning date, as it is in the report right now, it says they will have 180 days for the UAP task force to combine this data, present it to the DNI, Director of National Intelligence, who then puts a summary report together to go to 
the Senate and Congress. Now, I do know that this bill passed the Senate. It has not been signed off by Congress yet, but not because there's not any problem. They've just had other stuff on their plate. But the people I know involved say that they absolutely expect this to be signed off sooner rather than later, and it may be um, next month. There's a lot of word in the UFO community that we're expecting a major story. I'm wondering if the signing of this bill is part of that. That's just my question. I don't know if it is. But but regardless that that uh, is supposed to happen fairly soon, might be for the end of this month or into December, this month being still uh, November or whether it means December of 2020. And, uh, and then um, that summary report is supposed to be made public. Now there's supposed to be a classified annex that is anything involving uh, international, you know, like, um, you know, foreign bases, but I also understand it may be about ways and means stuff that they don't want to get get into foreign hands. And of course, everyone, the community is concerned, like how much is going to end up in the classified annex is all, all the good stuff, maybe. But if they come out with a public report about flyovers over military bases, military fields of operation and interaction with those craft, you guys, the government having that report and Congress and the Senate coming out with that public report, that is, that's as official as it gets. That is official disclosure. Okay, so so at that point, and it's supposed to be, it's supposed to happen within 180 days. Once the bill has been signed off on, which has got to first go through the Congress, but my understanding is, is it is, and then signed off by the president. Um, but it's it's those line items are buried in the whole intelligence bill. So of course, if that goes to Trump or Biden, it was going to go Trump. But it, of course, he'll just get signed off on because it's the entire other intelligence bill stuff. Um, no one's expecting these items to be altered or left out. If anything, there's some talk about maybe they will be added to. Um, for instance, Congress might come back and say they need more time. Regardless, we're thinking that the DNI or the ONI Office of Naval Intelligence or the Director of National Intelligence is probably going to say, look, they need more time. But if they stick to the 180 day thing, once it's signed from that moment, they have 180 days to present this report. Um, originally, we were thinking that date would be April. Now it's been pushed back to May or June. And if they're given more time, it could be later. But maybe next spring or next summer, we'll get this public report. And this public report is the government saying there's these flyovers, this interaction with military facilities, military training, fields of operation, blah, blah, blah. And you guys, that's the beginning. Now, the people involved, I know with To the Stars, a few of them have said, we're not going to let it end there. And the department of the Navy is saying, we're not going to let it end there. Whatever they come back with that report, they'll, they'll now give them specifics, look further here. So. But so that first initial report is likely to then produce additional reports. You guys, it's a ball of string. You start yanking that, you start yanking that string, and before you know, it starts unraveling. So where this could go over the next year is anybody's guess. I think it will be the major news story. Yeah, if we don't have okay, if everything with the transfer of power goes smoothly in the end. If COVID starts dying down come next spring or before, hopefully, but at least by spring, 
if there's no major fires and no major, you know, earth changes, catastrophe stuff going on, whether it's fires or, or hurricanes or whatever, you know, if, if we go into those things slowing down, which is why no one's heard about all this stuff, you know, I mean, you have to really find the UFO field, but I realize, you know, a lot of people aren't hearing it. And it took the back burner because all those stories were clearly, you know, on the front burner. But if you have a slower news period and things start mellowing out, I guarantee you if that report comes out, this will be the major news story. You know, it may be the major news story if, if a public report comes out and it's supposed to be on tracks. Mark Rubio, Mark Warner, the senators involved are saying, you know, they have every intention on having this public report and releasing as much as they can. So apparently somewhere in there, someone made the decision, the Pentagon and Navy, you know, really pushing this have made the decision that disclosure must be useful right now. Now, are we going to get the whole picture? Probably not. But at least if we get a part, it changes the discourse. The public discussion will change with whatever they put out. And it, and, and, and it will it'll be the start. So like I said, you're, you're unraveling that ball of string. But anyway, so there's what's currently going on right now. And the, the task force is currently functioning. It got some funding not as much as they're supposed to get, but they're starting the process. So when they get the rest of the funding, they're already underway to do this. What you're talking about is not disclosure, but confirmation. Yeah, exactly. That's what they're calling it. They're calling it confirming what we already know. But that's confirming for people like you and I who know the subject's real. For a lot of the public and the world, this will be a huge jump. Well, but whether the the greater public awareness is there or not, it's still that cat is out of the bag and the government is just coming on the heels of researchers and investigators and serious people that have been looking at this for a long time, such as yourself. The other thing that will happen with this report coming out is you're going to have insiders and whistleblowers and military people involved in these programs coming out of the woodwork. They already are, but I mean, it's going to, it's going to be an avalanche of these guys coming out. Yeah, and and, it, and, 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 and the people behind this are wanting it to lead to new uh, hearings on the subject to, you know, congressional hearings. So I, this, this could be the beginning of a huge long process, but it's definitely vindication for all those who've been involved in the subject. It's important to encourage people that are listening to this to continue to put pressure on the senators and the uh, representatives in Congress to make sure that they don't drop the ball on this thing, because they're the ones that are going to make this happen. They're the ones that are holding up the, the program right now because, the, yes, they do have other priorities. But if we make this a priority, we, the people, make it a priority. Then they have to make Luckily, it a priority. Luckily, these eight too. line items, and there may be more. That was just in the overview report that was made to the public. but are buried within the whole, you know, many pages of this in, intelligence bill. And so the intelligence bill will pass. And since this is buried in there, it's going to get passed with it. You know, the, um, the people I know who are involved are not saying that any red flags or anything come up. And all the congressmen and senators that they're talking to are saying, you know, like, no problem. It's just that entire intelligence bill needs to be signed. And there's so much weird political stuff 
stuff, you know, obviously in DC right now. But these folks are saying, look, they, they will absolutely sign it before the end of the year. And they're probably going to sign it before any major holiday break. So they're expecting it to all be signed off on relatively soon. Well, Melinda, that's a great place to put a pin in it and come back and revisit these topics in more depth. You know, I realize we're talking kind of three different areas to go from, well, actually four, to go from, you know, cultural effects of the Cold War to to alien abduction, military abduction, and then disclosure. We covered a lot of ground, but thank you for allowing me to do it. Absolutely. And we didn't even touch on the paranormal the psychic abilities that you've had. I mean, there's so many more things that I could talk to you well, about. We'll, that we'll, we'll do it someday. <laughs> yeah, for sure. For sure. So thank you again for spending so much time with me. And I appreciate you coming on the well, show. Thank you. I look forward to talking thank to you. Thank you for again. having me. I enjoyed it. Your questions were, were really good. So I, that, you made that very enjoyable. Thank you.